Yo, what's up, guys and gals? This episode of Gravity Lab Radio is brought to you by Performance Designs. I just got home from the Gravity Lab Radio to land air show, and oh my God, what a great time. I can't thank Performance Designs enough for giving us a place to hang out, to set up, and to be for the last five days. We showed up Monday, midday. They immediately had a conference room ready for us, double to triple the size of our normal studio, so it was such a great little setup for us. I'd reached out to their director of marketing, Albert Berktold, and he immediately answered back and very quickly uh, welcomed us into their house. So thank you to all the guys and gals at Performance Designs for hosting us, Albert for having us there. We saw a lot of other great people. We met the new tour rep, a guy named Jesse, a young lady named Rachel. She actually does a lot with merchandising. Uh, I've dealt with a gal, Natasha, for a, a while now, and really getting to meet her for the first time face-to-face was such a great, great time uh, with dealer relations. And all of those people are super wonderful. They're super kind and really couldn't treat customers better. Most of you guys and gals, though, would more than likely deal with a guy named Kyle, Kyle Peterson. Kyle's in charge of the demo department. If you hit up Performance Designs and you want to test jump a canopy, you want to get a canopy to see what's going to fit in your style of flying, Kyle is going to be the man to take care of you. Each and every one of those guys and gals are super passionate and they love what they do. It was so cool to be in a place where you saw so many people smiling. There are a couple hundred people at the Performance Designs factory there in the Deland area, and everybody we saw was smiling, happy, loving and loving life, and enjoying every bit they did. From the guys who fix the sewing machines to the guys and gals who clean the facilities to the guys and gals who sew your parachutes together, inspect everything, they are such a wonderful family. We're going to talk a lot more about Performance Designs because they did host us for seven shows. We'll talk about those seven shows, and soon we will have a recap to tell you more about them but I can't thank them enough. They're a world-class parachute manufacturer, and we'll talk a little bit about how they build parachutes, but I want to talk about their manufacturing process. What makes performance designs the best? They aren't happy with machines out there. They aren't happy with equipment out there. They aren't happy with manufacturing processes out there. They are so unhappy with it. They've created their own equipment. They've created their own cutting tables. They've created their own things to make canopies better. There might even be other manufacturers in other industries who've stolen or not stolen, bought, gotten, and taken some of those ideas and used them themselves. So Performance Designs started by building awesome parachutes, went to building awesome machines to build even better parachutes. If you want the best, find guys and gals who are so interested in building better that they make the machines to make it better. Performance designs have machines that I believe nobody else has or processes I believe nobody else has to build the best parachutes in the world. You've got to hit them up. Check out performancedesigns.com. If you are looking to buy a new parachute at performancedesigns.com, you'll simply find a link that says demos. If you click on demos, it will take you uh, to Sport Demos USA, Europe, wherever you happen to be going, you can click on it. Submit a demo request, and that's how you're going to get a hold of that dude named Kyle Peterson. Fill out a super simple form, and you will be getting a canopy sent to your doorstep as long as you request something reasonable. Don't be uh, asking for a Peregrine or a Valkyrie if you've got a jumps. Oh wow, my phone, if you could hear that, it's playing random music in the background. 
But Performance Designs, thank you guys and gals so much. Keep an eye out. Their new tour rep, a guy named Jesse, Jesse O'Neill, is setting up his North American tour. He is going to be getting that information out soon and watch for Performance Designs demo tour. A wonderful dude, Jesse. He's going to come check you guys out and visit you sometime soon. So thank you to Performance Designs for making this show possible. The other sponsor for this show is are the listeners. There are about seven or eight of you guys and gals who made this possible. Our airfare, our place to stay, and a lot of our expenses were paid for. We actually had to, uh, a a guy shipped or donated a Pelican case that, man, I looked the price at Pelican case and buddy, you know who you are. Holy shit, man. You are the man. Uh, The things that you guys donated financially and, and, and physically was phenomenal. All we paid for was our rental car and the price to ship that container back and forth. So Nick, Justin, and I couldn't be more gracious. You guys saved us wonderful expenses and really made this completely possible. This first guest we're going to be releasing is this week. I'll tell you about who he is, but just a preview. We'll release one guest this week. It's Friday. Next week, I'll pump out the second guest. A week after that, we have a guest in-house. We're back to our normal schedule, and we will release a third guest, and I will be telling you guys who they are over time. And from there, we'll spread out the next four. We had seven total over a couple of day, or a, a couple months after that. So first three, we'll pump out three in a row, and then we'll kind of spread them out just a little bit, tease you guys just a little bit. But my God, we had some of the funnest times. This first episode is, ah, man, uh, episode one, two, three, four, five. It was the fifth one we recorded, so we've been beat up a little bit that day. But the one, the only, Bill Booth. If you don't know who Bill Booth is, you'll hear a little bit about him in this story. But Bill Booth is one of the innovators of skydiving. He really has done a lot to bring skydiving gear to a modern age. Tune in, listen, enjoy the show. I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really <laughs> exciting all of a sudden. I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. You're listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and Nicholas Lott. Produced by Justin Grubbs. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? Ladies and gentlemen, we are live. We are here today with Mr. Bill Booth, the one, the only. Bill, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's kind of a cloudy day outside. It might as well be in here. And we might as well. I We, we, we just talked, and I don't want to tell too much of your skydiving story because you have so many other great stories, but people who don't know, and a lot of our listeners are young and new jumpers, let's get a little bit of that history and that backstory to who you really are in skydiving. Okay, well... I was born at the right time. I was born on the cusp of when parachuting uh, was changed from being something that would save your life or military to something that you could have fun with. So parachutes hadn't changed much since the first real free fall with a spring-loaded pilot shooting a ripcord was done in, in 1918. Now, it wasn't long after the airplane was invented, and it hadn't changed when I started jumping. We were still learning by static line um, with around parachutes. And it, it had not evolved because it was good enough for its purpose, which was to save lives or to drop military people in there. But when it became a sport, people wanted the gear to work better. They wanted to, and they invented new things to do with it, and the military gear wasn't good, and they needed it to be lighter. Um, we had no women skydiving because the only color we had was OD, and it just doesn't go, you know? <laughs> um, and so we had to make started making parachutes in colors, you know, and on like this. Um, 
And I'm glad the women came into the sport. They've lightened it up quite a bit. But pretty much it was a bunch of um, very young guys. By the time you had two or 300 jumps, you were an expert. D-licensed 200, you couldn't walk well because there was no flaring. I remember the ground just coming up and up and up, and nothing you can do about it. Smash. <laughs> you know, so 200 jumps, you were, um, you were pretty much a scarred veteran by that point. So we were like that. If someone got married, I think we'd burn their parachute, you know, because <laughs> that was it. Um, might as well. Might as well. Um, so I'm going to start the, at, at the very beginning. Um, I'm at the University of Florida. I'm driving my car out to go scuba diving, and a parachute lands on the road in front of me. And I whoa, almost ran him over. I picked him up, took him back to the drop zone. And within two hours, I made my first jump. You know, gave up the scuba diving for the day. Um, I landed, and I hit so hard, it knocked me out. Um, and when I woke up, I remember my jump master was pulling my parachute out of a cow's mouth, kicking it in the stomach to get the parachute out. And we got most of the slobber off, packed it up, and, you know, <laughs> put some duct tape on the, on the rips and did another one, you know. Uh, <laughs> By the, and there were no rules. Um, you know, I wasn't scared at all. I was 19 years old. Uh, I came back to school the next year, and I had my 75 jumps, and that made me a C license holder and an automatic static line instructor. So I decided I'd take my roommate that year in a jump, and I went back, and the club was still there, and we were packing this parachute, and it was full of rips. I mean, tears with not, with not even duct tape. I mean, like painter's tape on them. And I... I packed it and I showed it to him and I went to the drop zone. I said, now could I have a real one? You know, he says, what's wrong with that? You made your first jump on it. (laughs) So it was kind of different back then. Um, So I got going like that and I started, um, I got my degree in in music education, became a band director, teaching parachuting all the time. And uh, then I didn't like the gear I had. So I started making stuff first for my students and then for myself. And pretty soon I was making more money off the parachutes than I was off the uh, teaching. I would, sorry, that would be mine. Um, I would be teaching for five days a week and holding classes to teach people to jump on Thursday night and then spending Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, afternoon and all day Saturday and Sunday at the drop zone. So it was kind of a a seven-day-a-week existence. Um, Then I I made my first personal parachute and I came up here to the land from Miami and was jumping it here and someone said, where can I get that? And I said, well, it's mine. I just made it. And he said, will you sell it to me? And I went, well, and he said, I'll give you a hundred bucks for it. And I went, okay. So I gave it to him and I took my hundred bucks home and made myself another one. And the next weekend I had a new rig and a hundred dollars. And I said, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then pretty soon I'd hired people and my, my first group was about five people and we started making rigs in, uh, in my garage. Man, you have come a long way because we just came, as you know, from the tour of UPT, Mm -hmm. and there are more than five people there. I'm not sure if you knew that. Yeah, there there are more. As a matter of fact, if you'd notice the entrance, the little covered entrance there, Mm -hmm. I made that exactly the same size as my first shop in my garage. (laughs) I love that nostalgia. (laughs) Yeah, that's a bit of nostalgia, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I didn't know how to sew. I I just rented a sewing machine and and didn't ask them how it worked because I figured they wouldn't rent it to me, and... And just kind of figured it out. And I think the secret of my success is that I never worked for another parachute company. So no one told me what couldn't be done. So I just started doing things that, um, that caught my mind. Pretty much most everything I invented in the 30 years since my first jump, I thought about as problems in the first year. I, I, um, I never liked static line. Throwing people out, that terrified look in their face. If something goes wrong, they're dead. We didn't even have automatic openers for a while there. So I'd always said, why can't I take them with me? But the gear just wasn't up to it. 
It's kind of like Leonardo da Vinci designing a parachute long before the materials were available to make it work. And in the year 2000, someone actually built one, dropped it from a helicopter with him under it, and it worked great. <laughs> so I had to wait a while before, uh, before tandem was possible. But in the meantime, we had pilot sheet hesitations. They were kind of a big problem. Uh, you'd pull the ripcord, the container would open, the spring-loaded pilot sheet would jump out, and parachutes then were packed in sleeves. Sometimes the, the pilot sheet would lead the group, and sometimes the sleeve would. So we had all sorts of malfunctions and hesitations and, and everything getting tangled. And so I decided that um, if you couldn't get that pilot off your back, you'd actually reach back and grab it and throw it off. And I decided, well, I'm going to do the last-ditch effort first. And I took a rig that I had made that had an external pilot chute. It um, had a cat's eye kind of pilot chute cap on it. So you close the rig, four flaps with a, um, an elastic loop. I took a, took a bite of the bridle and stuck in there and it hold it closed and put the pilot chute on top of it, put the cat's eyes around the back and, and pinned it with a couple of pins. So I just took the spring out of that pilot chute, stuck it in my blue jean pocket, went up and jumped in the airplane and just hauled it out there. Last ditch effort first. I remember no one to go in the airplane with me because they didn't want to fill out the fatality reports, you know. But I went, wow, that works pretty good. And the thing I noticed I hadn't thought about, I don't have a ripcord in my hand anymore. After opening, you'd always have to take that ripcord and stow it somewhere. And people would run into each other, and it was always a pain. You'd drop them, and they were expensive. So, wow, no ripcord. This is good. And um, then when I learned to skydive, uh, we had round parachutes, and if something happened to your main, you just pulled your reserve, which was on the front, and you threw it out like a bed sheet, and you rode both of them down. We had releases called cape wells that were designed in 1947, but they were designed to attach the main and to release the main one side, at least if you were being dragged or going to water or something. They were never meant to break away or cut away. What's the current term now? We're all calling them cutaways. You call them cutaways. Okay. All right. Because um, we don't cut anything, I decided to call them breakaways, but I'll call them cutaways. Uh, you call them whatever <laughs> you want. <laughs> that three-ring release system's on your shirt. So a couple of things <laughs> happened, you know. So we started getting parachutes, like the Paracommander, that when they had a malfunction, they were violent. The old round parachutes malfunctions were not very violent. You could literally throw the reserve out, and, and it worked most of the time. Uh, and then especially when the rammers came, uh, they were much too violent. And then another invention happened. Someone took the front mount and put it above the back mount parachute and made a piggyback back in about 1963. And there now you couldn't throw the reserve out anymore. So people were cutting away with these cape hole devices, and they were not having good luck. Lots of fatalities from that. The first year I started jumping, there were 58 fatalities. And only 2,500 members in USPA. Now there are 40,000, and we had 15 fatalities last year. So you see how much safer it is. Mm -hmm. you know, we were dropping from the skies. So I decided that we needed to uh, make a release that would release both risers all at once with the pull of just one hand, because the Cape Wells took six motions with two hands, a lot of time, and both of them had to work. And when one didn't work, you're in a really bad spinner. So... I just used high school physics and came up with a three-ring release, pretty much tinkered together with stuff I found in the loft and, um, and hard rings from a hardware store. So while the Capewell cost millions of dollars to develop, the three-ring cost less than 100 bucks. case of beer. Yeah, a case of beer, beer and a case of beer. The only part that I couldn't find was uh, housing for the cables. And um, then I realized that the payphone had what I needed. If people remember payphones anymore... Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's how you get into speakeasies now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I just uh, got a hacksaw and started cutting the uh, cables off the payphones. And pretty much anyone who wanted a three ring for the first six months or so had to bring me a payphone. 
Um, I, I called the telephone company and asked them where they got them, and they said, well, we can't tell you that. So I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, they, pretty soon they called me back and said, okay, we'll tell you where you get them if you promise <laughs> not to steal all our pay phones. Uh, it's funny now. There are no more phone booths with those you know, armored cables anymore. The same company, Metalflex, that made for the phone company is making exclusively for the parachute industry now. So we've kind of usurped that little thing. From what they wouldn't first let you have, now they rely on you. They rely on us, yeah. 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 I, I, it's kind of funny. Um, it's a small company in Connecticut, and they make all those things. You really told the uh, abbreviated story, and I really want to get to the other ones, but just for our listeners, the hand-deploy pilot shoot is a huge innovation in our sport. Um, what a lot of people don't know, and I, I actually I think I first learned from you that spring-loaded pilot shoots don't deploy well when you're stable because of your burble and that oscillation, and and I've done some test jumping for Kelly, and I've got proof of that. Nick actually shot video. So that hand deploy, getting it out of your burble and less equipment was super huge. So thank yeah. you first there. Less packing effort. Yeah. Oh, man, I have packed spring-loaded pilot shoots you main know. in reserve. Oh, man. You get smacked in the face once or twice, and you know the difference. Well, it was invented in 1918, and we're still using it in our reserves. It's a very durable invention. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's made it well. And then the next thing you mentioned, just for people keeping up, the three-ring release system, it, the amount of force, the amount of pressure, the amount of actions, it has absolutely modernized our sport, and every manufacturer that I know of uses it, and I don't know of one. I mean, Aerodyne did something silly for a little while. Well, yeah, people, they, after the three-ring came out, there were six more releases patented, you know, uh, but the three-ring just was, it's cheap, it's simple, it's extremely reliable, uh, very lightweight. The cape wells weighed a pound each. You had a hard opening. You had a big belt on your uh, welt on your shoulder. We called them cape well welts. Um, and that's another thing. You're just really hurt. All that hardware sticking into you everywhere. Yeah, so th those things are nice. And they're very simple. The hand deploy pilot shoot cost me zero to invent. And actually, I got a patent on it and never charged anyone a dime. I was stupid. Open source back then, you know. Yeah. And then when the three ring costs $100 to invent, and with those two patents, I could have closed down the entire parachute industry. But I figured someone would shoot me, so I, uh, <laughs> I started, um, I, uh, I licensed the patent on the three ring for $5 a ring. I was an idiot. <laughs> you could have retired a long time I ago. I could have retired. Wow. I'll never retire, but I, I could have been more independently wealthy for sure. You know, Now with things like this guy, look, I don't let it go cheap. <laughs> you know? It takes a lot of time. I mean, like, I really believe most of what we have today, it doesn't cost nearly as much to make as it costs to design an R&D. That's where the, the, the R and D is. is is big, especially in the parachutes. Mm -hmm. All right, a container is fairly simple. Um, it doesn't need a lot of dynamic testing. It really doesn't. You you've got to make it look good and close easily. Now, a hand deploy pilot chute, if you stand on the ground and pull it out, it total malfunctions every time. It needs to be in a dynamic situation. Unlike the ripcord, you can pull the ripcord and watch the pilot chute jump out. So some of these things have to be tested in the air. Yeah. And when you get to something like uh, Tandem and Skyhook, the, the testing is immense. The, uh, so I want to kind of take, uh, again, our quick brief history of your skydiving, and then I'll have, we have so many more fun stories to talk about. Mm -hmm. One of the things you keep mentioning is Tandems. The backbone of our industry, the reason we have turbines, the reason many of us started skydiving. Mm -hmm. You actually, you and, and a buddy, Ted, mm -hmm. um, which I, I, if nobody in this world knows Bill and Ted, started Tandem Skydiving. Our excellent adventure. Exactly. Um, where did the idea come for Tandem Skydiving? And, and tell us a little bit about the evolution. Okay. So the evolution, again, as I said, when I was putting people out 
a static line, I really said, I need to go with him. You learn to fly, you learn to drive um, uh, with an instructor. You know, airplanes weren't very safe when there were no two-place airplanes. I said, we need a two-place parachute, but it wasn't very popular. So let's fast forward to, we're talking 1965, let's get up to uh, 1972. I've been skydiving about seven years, and Paragear Equipment Company has a sale, 44-foot parachute for $44. It was a cargo parachute. You drop a car with it. So I bought one, and it came in a rucksack about five feet tall. It was monstrous, you know, a parachute. So I said, damn, I'm going to jump this thing. So I put on my piggyback system, and I tied the risers of this parachute pretty much to my chest strap. And I had someone sit in the airplane, and I hopped out with my piggyback on, and this thing attached to the front of me. And they, as I fell away, it deployed out of the bag. And this monster parachute opened, sort of. You know, I didn't have much weight on it. And I just floated down to a feather soft landing. And I said, hey, I could take half the drops on in this sucker. So this other guy, I showed his name was Stan Carter. He said, hey, I'll go with you. So I said, okay. We both had piggybacks. So we tied our chest straps and the risers all together facing each other. And, <laughs> you know, got up in the airplane with a guy holding the bag. And we jumped out staring at each other's faces, you know. And went, and boom, there the thing was. And we just floated down, no steering out in the Everglades. And we said, this is really cool. So several other people did it. And then uh, about two weekends later, I went up with a guy, and I don't remember his name, because I'd like to find him and talk to him about it. <laughs> uh, the guy in the airplane dropped the bag. We didn't have it attached. So we're there facing each other in free fall, and here comes the parachute still in the bag right beside us, floating <laughs> with us in free fall. And I remember yelling at him, I said, all right, smart ass, what's the emergency procedure for this? And I said, cut. We both had hook knives in our hands, and we just chopped everything off, our chest straps and everything. And we were okay because we had piggybacks. We used to have belly bands. Right now, if you lose your chest strap, you're probably falling out of your gear. You know? So we landed, and that was the end of my tandem experiment for a while. Um, then we go up to 1977, we had a, a kid named Kirk Hanbury, um, and he was jumping at the, he was jumping, he was at the land, he was in a wheelchair at cerebral palsy, and on his 11th birthday, um, his, I, I guess, stepfather said, I want to take Kirk up, you know, on his 11th birthday, the kid weighed 62 pounds, you know, and, um, so I took my rig, my paraplane cloud, 220 square foot canopy, and we put a couple of attachment points on and made a harness for Kirk and put him in an 11th weight for his 11th birthday. And we consider that the first modern tandem jump. And that's in 1977. It's a, it's a famous picture. And we took a lot of kids here, but the limit was about 220 pounds because Kirk's stepdad and me weighed about the same, uh, and, and Kirk and both of them weighed the same as I did. So uh, it, was, uh, it was okay. But we still couldn't go with, um, with, uh, with higher weights than that. The parachutes wouldn't take it. Uh, then we go fast forward to about 1983, and I saw a military guy with this big rucksack. He could prop, barely walk, and Pioneer Parachute Company had made these big rammers, these 360-square-foot rammers for the military. And I said, that rucksack's about the same size as my secretary. So I finagled one of these parachutes, or two of them, actually, and made a, a, a rig, and I hooked up my secretary, Connie Simpson, and we went and, and did a hop and pop from the Cessna. We were a little scared. Uh, we didn't know if the bodies had slammed together. You know, we had trouble, no trouble with the kids, but, you know, she's almost a full-size person. She weighed like 100 pounds. And everything worked really well. And then we started uh, jumping and falling longer distances, and we figured, wow, we're falling really fast. By the way, Ted did the same thing with his secretary in the same summer of 1983, right? And there's a famous picture of us. We got together and um, did a, a free fall, and I hooked up. Uh, 
we're falling so fast, Norman Kent filmed it. He was bent over backwards. Um, photographers didn't know how to sit fly yet to, to film, but we didn't know how fast we were going. It ends up at 170 miles an hour. Um, so we didn't have a lot of luck, Ted and I, the first year uh, before we decided that a drogue was a good idea. Um, each of us blew nearly 50% of our parachutes up. The joke back then was the purpose of a tandem main is so you don't blow up the reserve too. You know, it <laughs> slows you down. <laughs> Ted put a drogue on before I did because until I solved the problem of the, of the tandems blowing up, um, they weren't safe because the reserve isn't going to have a drogue. And so I wanted to be sure that I had a... So we kept beefing up. Uh, uh, Bill Coe with Performance Designs was... But, Pretty much their first big project was to make tandem rigs for me. And we made them stronger and stronger and stronger. And pretty soon we got one that went 100 jumps without blowing up. And then it went 1,000 jumps. And when I had uh, parachutes that were going many thousands of jumps without blowing up, then I put a drogue on. It took about a year before I could do that. Um, but we made a mistake. Um, we put the drogue on a rig and kind of tacked it on. The rig closed normally, and the drogue was separate. And so we started having these problems of the uh, container opening while the drogue was still attached. And that caused entanglements and fatalities, or the problems with the drogue releasing and the main container not opening, which is another serious situation. You just got to pull a reserve into it. So after um, about the first 10 years, I took all the data, and about 50% of, of all the tandem fatalities were caused by uh, failures of the drogue to release or the container opening first. And uh, put it all together and made the Sigma then, and I made the drug release the same as the container closing system. I had enough experience in tandem to know I could do that. The drug doesn't pull all that hard. It only pulls one half of the combined weight. If you have 300 pounds, you got 150 pounds in the drug. But then the burble, which we talked about, coming off your back, you'll get a hum in free fall, and that's a 30 cycle or 30 hertz hum, and it's the burble coming off your back. On the right side and the left side, you have 15 rollers off your right side, 15 rollers off your left side every second, and they hit the drogue. So the drogue collapses or loses a lot of its lift 30 times a second. There's peaks and valleys. So if I look at a, at a drogue, it's an up and down wave with 30 peak or 15 peaks and 15 valleys every second. And I looked at the bottom, the valleys, and it was like 30, 40 pounds of load on it. 15 times a second, there were 30, 40 pounds. So I figured, I don't need all the mechanical advantage of a three-ring, which I'd used before. I could just hook it up, put a disc in the container, and uh, close it up around it, open the container, release the drogue. So learning about how the drogues work and learning about the verbal. Next time you're in free fall, listen for that 30-second aside. Humans can only hear down to about 20 cycles a second. So this is a very low tone, but it's that buzz of free fall. And that's the burble coming off your back. My so, wife must think at that tone because I can't hear it. <laughs> well, actually, guys can't. You know, I saw some uh, communities putting out sounds that uh, were above the range of adult hearing to try to drive teenagers out of parks at night. Because kids can hear things that we can't. And it's kind of striking, you know, because we lose that ability to hear 20,000 uh, hertz. Oh, wow. You know, and uh, the kids can still do it. And uh, you and I, we're, we're probably in the 12 hertz upper range. You know. Why didn't you look at him when you said that? No, Everybody's I'm looking at both <laughs> of you, you know. <laughs> yeah. Everybody is, I, I, I love having you here because Tom Noonan and I are the same age. I'm two months older than him. Uh-huh. So up till now, uh, I have been the most mature gentleman in the room. 
Oh, you guys are just kids. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, kids. Yeah. One of the, so a couple of things you said, and I love it. It's a as a vector and a sigma tandem examiner and instructor. Mm-hmm. I remember going to the sigma and the oh man, I can't remember directions now. The left hand release, it, it wasn't a huge difference in pressure, but that yeah. right hand release on the sigma, it was so much better, and yeah. it makes sense now to hear that yeah. peak or that that valley of thirty pounds. Yeah. But one thing that you didn't mention, and I want to see if I remember right, is the tandem instructor wasn't always in the back. No, no. There's four ways to do tandem, and I tried all four, you know. Um, You could have uh, the instructor in the front or in the back. I actually tried it. You would put the tandem rig on the passenger, uh, and they were all big men at at first. And then you'd just have the controls come over the front, and uh, they'd be on the tandem master. We felt this was a good way because you had control of the air first. They weren't in front of you, but... Their view was a little limited in the back of your head. And, uh, of course, uh, they had the ability to reach around and grab your arms and stop you from pulling, which is not a good thing. Then we put them up front, but that was kind of awkward because if they weren't in a good position, it was kind of hard to steer yourself. I even tried one jump with the, uh, well, actually several, with the tandems side by side. Um, And then, of course, there's the, the passenger up front facing you which is the easiest way to exit. It really is because they go into a fetal position, which is perfect aerodynamically. It's very, very smooth. On landing, uh, their feet don't get tangled up because they're trailing behind you. You know, it's kind of nice. I'll, I'll tell you, though, the first, about probably the third landing I tried with the passenger facing me, it was a girl, and I said, put your feet and knees together. She did, and when her feet hit the ground, she just got me in the crotch real hard with both <laughs> both knees, and I went, mm, I don't think that's going to work. So I got smarter on the next jump. So I, uh, I took up the same girl, and I, I said, now, at 1,000 feet, I want you to wrap your legs around my hips. And she says, I've heard that somewhere before. And I said, <laughs> and we're, both, we're both laughing hysterically. I said, this isn't going to work. You know, so that was the end of that experiment. But I used to lend that, uh, that harness to couples uh, to go up and have sex in free fall. And I, I don't know who's got it now, but I've got at least a dozen uh, pictures of uh, people oh, doing it. So I, I did <laughs> increase the delinquency of skydivers with that harness, you know. Um, but I remember it, it, it really worked well, but of course the passenger saw nothing but the sky behind, so it, it didn't work out. So there are, there are four ways to do it, and I try all four. I'm not smarter than other people. I'm more persistent. I try everything. I'm a tinkerer more than an inventor, and I just put together stuff until it works. Keep trying until you get it. Yeah. So the one thing that I would think of is if they're facing me, if you do tandems long enough, your student is going to puke. It just is going to happen at some point. And I could just imagine somebody facing me and letting go. Oh, oh, oh I know, I know. Like it's a magical enough. moment. Well, I've learned to, to <laughs> before we came up with the Sigma harness, which cut out the people getting sick a lot, yes. uh, you know, have, uh, watching someone throw up and having the throw up go out and come right back at you in, in, the, in the slipstream. I learned Wait. how to take people's faces and go like this, mm-hmm. you know, off to the side, off, and so it's under my right arm. But I came up with a way to stop that from happening, and it just doesn't happen that much anymore. Have you had a student throw up in free fall? No, they never okay. do it in free fall. Yeah, they do that, under canopy. The, I've the seen unicorn. It once. Are, have you really? I've shot video of it. Oh, he said, I, I guess yeah. it's possible. I have video of it. I actually still probably have the tape, so it tells you it's been a long time ago. Yeah. And you may or may not know a guy named Ward Hessick, and Ward worked for Mirage for a while. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Ward landed. Like, I saw in free fall something go flying. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. And when he lands, he's like, she vomited, she vomited, she vomited. <laughs> and uh, I was like, no, that was, she threw up on you. Yes. I was so excited to see that. Well, it was the way the harnesses were made, they cut off the femoral artery, and it mm-hmm. took about 30 seconds to a minute under canopy, especially if you did some spins with them to 
to cut off their blood flow, and that made them nauseous. And uh, that's pretty much the throw up. We had an old DZO, my, my old DZO, long time ago, who really insisted when he first got Sigma rigs that, like, well, I got all these old Vector 2 harnesses. I'll keep using them. We'll just mix them in. And we argued and argued and argued. Mm-hmm. And one day we said, and actually Jay Stokes is the one who did this for us, mm-hmm. put this harness on, let me hang you. He put the harness on. He immediately said, take all those harnesses out of rotation, buy new Sigma harnesses. Yeah. I'm sorry. We're like, yeah. the students, A, deserve comfort. Yeah. And if I can, and I please tell me if I'm going to quote you guys wrong, but it is the first tandem harness that is made as a skydiving harness. Yeah, really. We uh, at first we didn't really know what we were doing, um, and and of course the Sigma harness has a problem because it's comfortable. If you don't put it on right, you could fall out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's where the the Y strap came in after a while. Uh, we we had to make one harness fit everybody pretty much. It has twelve points of adjustment, you know, and and there's so many different people, and some of them shouldn't be skydiving, mm-hmm. you know. Um, people that have a large amount, you can say the word fat, can't you, around their legs or something. Yeah. When the harness tightens up, uh, it becomes it loosens because their fat sinks in toward the bone six inches. You know, you can't mm-hmm. do it. And so we've developed harness now with thirteen points of adjustment and a, and a strap down the back. I was worried about that for a while. No one is, no parachute designer has ever made a parachute harness with a strap down the spine. I think we're going to break backs or coccyx here. So I made mine kind of elastic and stretchy, and, and so far, um, there you go. I don't have nearly the front rides Jay Stokes does. He's actually my mentor who trained me. Yeah. But at 700 front rides, I've got a lot of Y-Mod rides, uh-huh. and it's not bad at all. No, it's, it's not it's, bad it's, at all. It's not it, a problem. Because I, I, I put it in there elastically. It's To yeah. me, it's a catcher's mitt. If you fall out of the other harness, it'll stop you from going further. Mm-hmm. You know. And there were there were two times that that happened pretty much in the same six months, one on Strong and one on our... And our, our guy, was a, he was a, a quadriplegic that people helped him out mm-hmm. of the airplane and helped him out of the harness. And the way out, he was out of the harness before they left. Yeah. And the harness was down around his knees. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> so that's, that's not very good. That's your worst day. It's kind of funny, and I've got videos of it, testing the, um, the idea for the skyhook, is I would take up passengers with full gear on, and I'd have them, uh, I'd break them away from me, and I'd watch the reserve open, and I'd hold on to the pilot chute of their reserve sometimes to see how quick it would be and how much force would be on that pilot chute. Because I wanted to know that if I attached the reserve pilot chute to the main, would I pull too hard? Would it pull the bag off the reserve? You know, would it break things? So actually by holding on and watching, I could actually feel. So I've broken away passengers, and it's a funny feeling to watch them go. But luckily they had their own parachutes. I I have heard a lot of great stories from you, and that's the first time I've gotten that negative. I'm so glad we're backtracking on things we already know, and and our listeners can really appreciate what you've done for our sport. I mean, it's we we talked earlier before we started recording my five children a seminar that eventually got redubbed because everybody thought we were going to go listen to Bill talk about his family and his yeah. kids yeah but the uh, guy who brought in the three ring the hand deploy pilot shoot the Collins lanyard tandem skydiving and the mart skyhook yeah, yeah. I, I get those yeah, right yeah my five children yeah yeah and the last one that I'll really mention and I love the Collins lanyard but I think we'll confuse a few of our younger listeners yeah. but we'll the mart the skyhook that is that last thing you just mentioned yeah. Well, you know, it started off tandem. Um, there's uh, you have to have a, a, a pilot shoot to pull out your reserve mm-hmm. or your main. And it's sized for the speed you're going and uh, for the weight of the canopy. All right. Now, in most cases, we can get a pretty good judge of what you want for your your main pilot shoot because you're almost always going at least 70 miles an hour in a hop and pop and usually about 120. 
you know, not much faster. So the delta velocity that the pilot she has to work with is between 70 and 120. And on a breakaway, you might be going 25, you know. So really 25 to 120. That's the delta V. You go to tandem, now you're going from 25 to 170. So any pilot chute that will pull your reserve out quickly at 25 miles an hour will pull way too hard at tandem terminal, which is possible. And this was a problem. So we didn't want to put too big a pilot chute in that would work really quickly in a breakaway because it would definitely damage the reserve. So we put too small a pilot chute on for a breakaway. And tandem takes about three seconds from a breakaway from a fully open main till you get to line stretch. Not opening, but line stretch. And, of course, that was illegal because until that point, there was a rule that said all reserves have to be fully open in three seconds. So we had to get that rule changed. And the way we did it was say, okay, that's good for up to 300 pounds, but if you have more weight, you can have a hundredth of a second per pound, you know, because bigger parachutes just open slower. That's just mm -hmm. the way it is. And so now if you have a 600-pound load limit, you can go six seconds. So, so we worked that out there. So that was still a problem we had. Three fatalities, double fatalities, in a period of two years because on breakaways from slowly rotating malfunctions in that three seconds, a tandem pair would back loop through the pulling reserve lines and usually on the, on the passenger's feet. So I said, I've got to come with this idea that had been cooking in my head for 20 years of attaching uh, the malfunction main parachute to the reserve pilot chute, making the malfunction main a big super pilot chute. And my logic on this was, if you're going fast, you have a bag lock on tandem, um, you'll have the drag of the reserve pilot chute will be just right, you know? It's going to pull it out just right. If you're going slower, the main parachute's bigger. That's why you're going slower. So it's going to pull more, and you're going slower. And what I found out was, that no matter what speed you break away with the MARD, your time to line stretch is always the same. If it's a bag lock or a fully open main canopy, it gets the thing to line stretch in a half to three quarters of a second, depending on the line length. All right. Mm -hmm. So now I have a variable speed pilot chute for the reserve. It pulls exactly the right amount for the speed you're going. And it's just one you know, thing. So it's kind of good. It, it's kind of good for everything in that way. Because as a parachute designer, Bill Cobo tell you, you really want to know... Um, what the speed is to, um, to, um, to line stretch or the differential velocity. Uh, the relative velocity of your parachute as it comes out of the bag compared to your velocity. And it's been determined a long time ago that's 50 feet a second. You want that canopy to hit the end of the lines traveling 50 feet a second away from you. If it goes slower than that, the lines as they end slow will blow up over the bag. All right? Ah. And you have a bag lock. That's where that comes from, too slow a deployment. If you go too fast... It's a hard snatch force. The canopy slumps in the bag. Line stows break, and you disorganize the pack job. Sliders can drop down. You get all sorts of bad openings if you pull much harder than that. So we always have to kind of live with that with the pilot chute size we choose because you can't say, I'm going to go up and have a total malfunction so I can have a, you know, a small pilot chute in my reserve where I'm going to have a partial so I can put a big one in there. So what the MARD was for, not necessarily faster, it was for tandem, get the lines out of the way of the people really quickly, same as the direct bag static line does, gets the line and the canopy away from that first jumper before they can entangle with it. Well, what a MARD is, is a direct bag for your reserve, and instead of an airplane with the static line attached, it's your main parachute, all right? So it is faster, but a lot of people say, well, God, I can break away at 100 feet. That wasn't the idea. The idea was to give the same kind of separation velocity every time. 
and it works really well for that. I never intended it for anything but tandem, but to test it, we really couldn't use tandem because where do you put the other reserve? So we were using solo gear, and people were jumping it with smaller canopies, and once you've done a breakaway with a skyhook, you're kind of scared to jump without it. So all our test jumpers started insisting we put them on their solo gear, and then pretty soon it went to the whole market. One of the things that I found most interesting, and I recently learned this about MARDS, is as much as you've helped father and bring this into our industry, you helped influence the testing standards that are required by the FAA to what we... Because mm-hmm. before your Skyhook, what's yeah. a, what, how do we test it? There were no tests. It was the same trouble with Tandem. I went to, um, to use Tandem, and there's no testing for it. Mm-hmm. You know, So I had to go up to the FAA and talk them into a test procedure. Uh, Ted Strong and I went up there uh, together. We talked them into a procedure that I had written. Uh, we talked the operational guys into allowing us to to jump, and then we talked the TSO people into allowing us. We had to do it at the same table. In other words, you can't jump gear in TSO, all right? But you can't jump gear without the authority to do it. So the TSO people, you know, they needed to get together. So we all signed the document at once, touching it, so no one can say they signed it first. <laughs> and we got the... the uh, experimental test program for one year, and it lasted 20 years. <laughs> that was a lot. You had to get a pretty much biography of everyone on every tandem jump. The paperwork was immense. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, we got it in there, and in 20 years later, um, this is kind of funny, uh, I pick up the, the newspaper a long time ago. We had newspapers. <laughs> and I see that, that Jay Randolph Babbitt has been now appointed as the head of the FAA, and I went, Randy Babbitt? He was my next-door neighbor. I went to high school with him. So I call up, are, are you the same? He says, yeah, hey, Bill. And I said, hey, Randy, I have a problem. I've been dealing with this for 20 years, <laughs> and that's what it took. <laughs> I've never, I've no, always No one's ever heard happened. that story, you know. That is, yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so that's how that got done 20 years later, that we got tandem decriminalized, we call it. It's kind of like <laughs> marijuana. You know, everyone's <laughs> using it, but now we've decriminalized it. And you're right, tandem is the reason we have all the nice equipment in skydiving. Um, it's a shame. I thought more people would skydive, and they have because of tandem, but I thought it would be more explosive. I don't think drop zones are, are handling the first people correctly. They need to hire timeshare salesmen, and after the first tandem jump, lock the guy in a room with a timeshare salesman, and they get a whole lot of more people in AFF. You've got to sell it. <laughs> I will say our Spaceland system really believes in what you, uh, you started, and mm-hmm. you didn't create tandems, and, and uh, please tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. to take people on first jumps. You invented tandems to get people hooked onto skydiving and teach them. They're students, yeah. not passengers. Yeah, yeah. They, I've always said that they were students. <laughs> I've always said they were students. And it, it's a ride, too. When you learn to fly an airplane, you go up for a demonstration mm-hmm. ride, you know, and this is kind of the first one is kind of a demonstration ride, but I was envisioned a, um, a three or four jump tandem program where you got more and more responsibility. And some people have done that. Um, before AFF, I mean, maybe 10 years before I developed a system where I'd put out students on static line, if they did really well, the, the program was this in the original static line, you did two jumps and then you did dummy ripcord pulls. You did five static lines. So I said, well, let's, if they do two good jumps and they're stable, um, I'm going to buddy jump them. I'm going to hold on to their harness. And I'm going to put an automatic opener with the pin connected to my wrist. So if I drop them one and a half seconds later, the main will open. All right. And so I've watched these guys on two jumps. And I call it the Booth Exceptional Student Training Program or BEST system. Um, after two jumps, I know they're good. I go and buddy system. And uh, we'll go out and give them a, about a 30-second delay. 
mm-hmm. and uh, they'll pull their ripcord, or I'll do it, or I'll simply let go of them, you know, and their main's going to go because that automatic yeah. opener was on their main. And so I did this for a long time, and then I took it to USPA, and uh, they said, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. You know, people shouldn't do relative work if they have 200 jumps. Second, third jump, are you kidding me? <laughs> but they weren't ready for it. The whole board was style and accuracy people. Mm-hmm. And then it got developed here again in, um, in the land. As a matter of fact, I was taking a guy who was, who was uh, paraplegic and uh, putting him over a lake, and I'd buddy system out of Mr. Douglas, but because he couldn't use his legs, I was having trouble holding him stable. So uh, a guy, another guy in the airplane named Kenny Coleman says, let me hold the other side. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how that got going here at the land. Not, yeah. You know what happened in the land between probably 1974 and 84? Uh, AFF, tandem, hand-deployed pilot shoot, three-ring, Canopy relative work and swooping. The birth of modern skydiving. Everything here in the land in 10 years. It was a golden age. Yeah. You know? So I, I, I have a few questions. I'm an AFF examiner. I talk mm-hmm. about the Ken Coleman story, 1981 approval, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. One of the stories I've always understood and told, and now I get a history. Mm-hmm. Johnny Carson made his first skydive with a guy named Bob Sinclair. Bob Sinclair. Who had his buddy leash. Yeah, buddy. He had, got yeah. that from you. Yeah, no, no, no. Got I got that? it from Bob Sinclair. Okay. Bob yeah. Sinclair started. If you go back, if you go look at all my presentations uh-huh. about where FM come from, I start pretty much. Bob Sinclair uh, and another, another group down there got a contract from the government to teach ejection. Uh, parachute techniques to uh, Air Force pilots for ejection. So the first time they went out and they used the buddy system, they were doing it for years in that government contract. And Carson found out about it, and that's where I, the first time I saw it was on TV. Yeah. When Johnny Carson made his jump. Tom yeah. shot that video. And so I said, well, I'm going to do that too. And I started doing it. All right. And then I did it for, for three or four years. And then the incident happened up here with that paraplegic in, into Lake Diaz here in the mm-hmm. land with Kenny and I. And so Kenny followed it through. They developed a good system, he and Gary Dupuy, who doesn't get much, much credit for it at all, and Rocky Evans. Um, and uh, they went before a better board at USPA that had relative workers on it, and it got approved. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, everything happened in the land. The 70s were fun. They really were. Dangerous, but fun. If you're a jumper and you haven't visited the land, you've not done yourself service yet. We, uh, I've gone a few tours of PD's factory. Mm-hmm. These gentlemen just joined us on the last one. Just mm-hmm. got a tour of your wonderful facility. And my first time in the area was, oh man, twenty, just over twenty years ago. And I'm gonna warn you guys and gals if you're into land and you see this kind of goofy, odd-looking old man with a really long beard walk up to you, my first experience was like. Who is this old guy? <laughs> and within about five minutes of him talking, I'm thinking, who is this old guy? <laughs> like I did that. that was my experience when I was 20 years old, 23 years old. And man, my first interaction was, who is this guy talking to me? And all of a sudden... And I was probably 50 and I was the old man then, you know? yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember I was 23, so everything <laughs> yeah. at 23 was old. <laughs> yeah. So if you ever hear this guy who comes start telling you stories in any drop zone, I don't care what he looks like, listen to the old the old guy on a drop zone. You get there by not by a coincidence. And Bill, it's the first time I met you, you just started telling us random stories and, and I've mm-hmm. always enjoyed hearing them since. Well, I, I mean, I... Um, I pretty much was friends with the guy that invented the piggyback, the uh, the guy that uh, that invented the ram air parachute, uh, the, the you know the, the, all these guys. I've been there, I've met them all, and that's kind of fun. It, it's good to to know these people and know the history of it. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story here. Ram airs first came out, and um, well, the first the first canopies that came out that uh, that really glided were triangular parachutes. Now they have a smaller volume when inflated. 
because they're simply more efficient. But smaller volume means less filling time. So they open hard, right, basically. And the rammer has an especially small interior volume when you look at it compared to a round parachute. Those things had a long filling time because a lot of volume of air had to get into them. So ram airs at first were limited to hop and pops. Anything more than that, it'd kill you. They were put together well, so they didn't break, all right, but it'd kill you. Um, so a lot of different reefing systems came out uh, because we had to slow these things down. Uh, reefing systems are used on the uh, Apollo capsules coming back in, and those are pretty much a, a loop of line around the bottom of the canopy with a cutter on it and a timer. And it's a, that's expensive to use for everyday jumping. So the first reefing system that made ram airs work was called rings and ropes. There were these four 40-foot-long lines, and there were a series of rings attached in the top of the canopy that held it shut like a tobacco pouch. And the pilot chutes were attached to the end of these lines. So for the canopy to open, it had to haul the pilot chutes in 40 feet, and then it would spread. But these lines kept entangling, and they didn't work too well. You could do terminal, but it knocked your socks off. Um, the first rammer I got had a rings and ropes on it. And I always thought I tried terminal. I was young and smart, and I used to be 6'5". I'm 5'10 five, <laughs> now. But these opening shocks, I'd look up at the canopy, and i said, these are beautiful. You know, because I saw stars <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> stars. Uh, so I, 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 I looked in my logbook. I, I got my Ram Air, and I did uh, 150 second delays, and I did 130. Then I did another 153 second delays. <laughs> it must have hurt a lot. But by 1972, I'm at the Nationals, the first relative work Nationals. Uh, my team, the High Altitude Star Habit, which spelled hash, of course, <laughs> it's an unruly-looking bunch of guys. Uh, Paul Poppenhager was our pilot. Bill Otley uh, was on our team. Uh, he's, he was Mr. USPA forever. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I wanted to do relative work with my rammer, and uh, they wouldn't let me at the Nationals because, well, number one, I had a piggyback, which was really strange. You can't do relative work with the piggyback. Jerry Bird, the, the guru of relative work, mm -hmm. all told us that. Too much weight on your back. But I was doing it. And these things were bigger than tandem rigs, weighed 55 pounds. And the opening shock was, was hard, but I'd kind of worked that out. But ram airs surge forward on opening, unlike round parachutes, and they thought that was dangerous. So I had to get special permission to use a ram air in this relative work meet, the first one. And my permission was I had to count to three after everyone else had opened. And we had a lot of low openers on that. But luckily, the things opened so damn fast, it didn't matter. You could pull them at 50 feet and be fine. You know, <laughs> not, not really, but... <laughs> so at, previous to that, I'd been knocked unconscious seven times oh. that I remembered. Wow. Uh, when I asked somebody, that they I said they had a hard opening. I said, how long were you out for? You know, and, well, that's <laughs> not a hard opening. <laughs> Jesus, you know? So anyway... <laughs> on, on the seventh jump, I woke up in an ambulance. I was unconscious oh. through landing, but the people that observed said I landed into the wind uphill, <laughs> you know, or downhill or something. It was, and it was a very soft landing. I wasn't hurt, you know, like that. So then the slider came out. So damn simple, worked well. Everyone could do it. And I'm thinking, why wasn't this invented? So I started looking back, and it was invented in 1938 and forgotten. And I went through all that hell because I didn't know my history. <laughs> <laughs> it's so amazing. It, it, even going back to history, some of the gear we looked at today with Mark, the yeah. three ring, the, the first uh, rig that you had, yeah. the one that has metal plates, it's not supposed to have metal plates. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, they, they, that had cables on it. Yeah, yeah. Cables on he, it, yeah. He showed us where, like, hey, look, see where this cable pulls through these loops? Yeah. When Bill went to the three and he was like, hey, let's just use old history to... Yeah, I used my first, my first rig opening system for my canopy. Because you couldn't use a ripcord on a three ring. It's got a one-inch long pin and would fall out. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fall out in your reserve because you got the spring pushing it and holding it in place. But it would simply fall out. And if you had the same handle for the reserve... Uh, and for the breakaway system, especially at first, people will be pulling the wrong one. I got to make the decision basically about, well, uh, when you started off, you had cape wells, and with the front mount reserve, both ripcords were on the right. So both main reserves were on the right-hand side. So when I started making piggybacks and came up with the three-ring, we got to figure out what to do. And where do you put the reserve handle? Where do you put the breakaway handles? I had to make all those decisions. And in the 70s, there were rigs that had them all screwed up. Sometimes the reserve was on the right and the main was on, you know, and, and so we had a lot of people dying from lack of standardization. So we finally got together and said, all right, <laughs> the, um, the uh, hand deploy pilot chute's going to be here and you're going to have the breakaway handle on the right and the reserve on the left. And we standardized. It'd be kind of like renting a car and that had the accelerator and the brake pedal reversed. You'd have a lot of accidents. That's how my mother drives. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how people do. So, um, so we, that was part of the 70s. Um, we had a, a girl jumping to my, a party at my house that uh, got confused and pulled the breakaway handle thinking she was deploying the pilot chute. And then when she did find the pilot chute and deployed it, the main just left and she never found the reserve and just bounced right in the lake in our party. It was, it was a real bad party, you know, but that was kind of rampant in the 70s with uh, mismatched gear. Man, that is uh, same house that you live in now. No, well, okay. I, I live in a house in the river now, but out by the lake that maybe you, you okay. come to. Yeah, I'm yeah. not in that house anymore. My, okay. my daughter's in there. She, it, that's a beautiful house. Though. Beautiful house in the lake, yeah. 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 So uh, there was a lot of problems with that. I remember the 77 Nationals, we had uh, three fatalities in an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, not Nationals, but the Z-Hills meet. Okay. Three fatalities in an hour and 15 minutes. Wow. I was running from one to the other. They were dropping like flies. And uh, <laughs> that's the way it was. It was pretty risky. And that was the, the misrouted handles? or uh, well, it was, it was a lot of different reasons. Actually, somebody apparently put a few hits of acid in the uh, coolers by the airplanes. And no one knew about that. Because a lot of people were saying, <laughs> we're flying along and saying, I don't need to pull a ripcord. I can fly. <laughs> so we don't know if that contributed much or at all. or you know. But there was um, uh, one of them was uh, with an early swoop. And they were swooping between the lines of vans. And someone opened a door in the van. They went right into the door. <laughs> Killed them. Um, I've seen some very strange fatalities in this sport. Luckily, they're very rare now. Amazing. Two and a half million jumps in the United States. 15 fatalities. Wow. Our index rate is lower than it's ever been. Never been. And the, the two hugely contributing factors, I'll say the second one first, is education. We've become much better at yeah. it, but gear. Yeah. Gear has And the automatic ours. opener is not hurt. No, not at all. Not Air, at all. Yeah, helmet has been a godsend to the sport, even Absolutely. the guys before him. Yeah. But it, it's, it's been great. So the first time I met you or saw you, let's go correct that, was in Titusville. The second time I saw you, one of my favorite authors has always been a guy named John Grisham. Yeah. And I'm watching this movie called mm-hmm. The Firm, and I'm like, is that, that camp, is that Bill Booth? <laughs> and I remember watching that movie just completely weirded out, and I was with my girlfriend at the time, and I wanted to stay and watch the credits. And back in those days, we didn't watch credits, where today there's always something extra the in Extra it. in the credits, yeah. And she, didn't, she wasn't a jumper, and she didn't understand. I'm trying to tell her, I'm like, look, the, the pilot dude in this movie was... My was, credit was six from the bottom. I wasn't at least the bottom on it. You know? <laughs> oh, I had to wait a long <laughs> time to find William Booth on that credit. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. Well, I guess we might as well go back to that. So Tom Cruise, 
and Nicole Kidman are, are filming Days of Thunder in the land, Daytona Beach. Uh-huh. All right. And the caterer, Four Stars Catering, the guy that runs it used to run Elsinore Drop Zone. So he talked Cruz into, since we were in, near the land and tandem jumping had just started, he talked Cruz into coming out and making a tandem jump. All right. So I get a call. And they say, uh, Tom Cruise is here, wants to make a tandem jump. He'd like to meet you. So I walked into a room with three guys seated there, and I went over and I shook the wrong guy's hand. <laughs> I shook his stunt double's hand and said, hi, Tom. I got off in a bad, <laughs> bad, I didn't know what he looked like, you know, like this. So he makes his jump. He made, he made 28 jumps, all right? And uh, for the, the rap party at the end of the movie, they made a jump into, um, into, the, into the Daytona Speedway. You know, where Trump just did his laugh and the beast. That must have been fun to watch. Um, now, Tom Cruise, when he's, or any movie star is making movies, they're not allowed to ride in the front seat of a car or a single-engine airplane. If they get hurt, it's millions of dollars. So the fact, he had to sneak and do this. So he was landing out, and we sent a golf cart for him, and no one knew he was doing it. And I'm out there talking to him, and I see a young jumper running out with a logbook open. You know, I'm figuring, oh, this guy knows Cruise is here. He wants the, and I step back. <laughs> He ran right past Cruz and said, are you Bill Booth? <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Cruise looked at me. You know? <laughs> and I said, I bet that different. The guy had no idea it was Tom Cruise, of course. You know? So I signed the logbook. And I said, you might want to get these, this guy. So he says, no, nah, never mind. And he left. You know? <laughs> so I, t- I, have a, I have a seaplane, a lake seaplane. And I took Tom and, uh, and, and, and Nicole Kidman up in it for a ride. And, uh, and so then fast forward six, seven years, I get a phone call. And he says, Bill, is this you? I said, this is Tom Cruise. I got a part for you in my next movie. And I went, who are you, asshole? I mean, come on. No, it's really me. And so that's how I got the part in the movie. Um, and and I, I, they, they flew me out to, it was filmed in Memphis and in Grand Cayman. You know, I actually got to hang out, and I'll tell you some stories about Grand Cayman. I got to hang out in Grand Cayman for a couple of weeks on the beach getting paid for it with, you know, with a lot of nice people. So I, I get to I get up to Memphis. I had some fun with the uh, the the prop guy. I wanted to put a Banks dive lodge in the side of the airplane. I said, "Well, how are you going to do that?" And he says, "Magnetic signs." And I said, "Well, I'm going to save you here. You better ask for aluminum magnets because airplanes are made of aluminum." So the guy actually went down and asked for aluminum magnets, and he called me up later, mad at me. I said, "Well, what can I say? I had a shot." <laughs> so I put it on file. So I get down there, and I'm I'm picked up with an assistant director. This bunch of these guys, they're not paid much, but. So I got taken to lunch with the um, with the uh, director and the producer of the movie, basically, and we're, we're eating, and and I, I turned to Sidney Pollack, you know, and I said, uh, what movies have you made, you know? And everyone just goes, oh, <laughs> like this. How could you possibly ask Sidney Pollack that? And he says, well, you know Robert Redford? Yeah, I do all of his, you know, <laughs> and like this. And then the producer stopped in and said, maybe you've seen one of mine, Amadeus, you know? And I'm like, oh, I'm with the big guys here. I really am. So because I didn't know them, I became teacher's pet, pretty much. So I take uh, the movie set in Grand Cayman. Now we're down at Grand Cayman. They took the whole set, all the, the, the trailers, makeup trailers and everything, and put it in a barge went down to Grand Cayman. So they have taken and fixed up A-Banks Dive Lodge, which is away from the main village. And so Sidney Pollack said, hey, can I fly down to the, with you in the airplane? So I flew down there. You know, He said, that was a lot of fun. He said, I'm going to give you a line. So he yelled script, and he came over and looked at the day's shooting and tore off a piece and handed it to him. I looked at it and said, hello. You know, <laughs> they didn't want me to answer the phone, you know, when Tom Cruise called. And I said, I said, Sidney, no one in a business answers a phone, hello. You should say A-Bank's Dive Lodge. She says, now you want writing credit? <laughs> 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 
So I, I got to do that, and uh, I watched the Sidney Pollack love to like waitresses and tour guides. All the waitresses and tour guides in the movie are the waitresses that were there working. He thinks it led authentic, lends authenticity not to have an actor do these parts. So when you're done, I watched him do it with one of the waitresses, come over and kneel down, I knight you a movie star, and they pasted a, a gold foil star on her, gave her the hat. So when I did my part, this happened to me. So the next day, we're going to go scuba diving, and uh, Gene Hackman and, and Tom Cruise are going to go scuba diving. So anyone that's scuba diving can go on the boats. They're waiting for the boat to come on the beach. I'm sitting there, and this like six-foot gorgeous blonde walks up to me and says, I see you're in the movie, and you know, I got the hat on. And uh, the star, I said, the star works really well. She was gorgeous. And uh, she said, well, I've got a part tomorrow, and I'm, I don't know anybody, and, and what are you guys doing today? And I said, well, we're going out in a boat, you know? And... And she said, well, can I come? And I said, well, sure. And I said, well, how did you get this part? You know, I said, what part did you play? Are you going to play? And she says, well, I'm a hooker. And everyone looked at me. <laughs> and I, I said, that's nice. How did you get the part? And she says, I'm Playmate of the Year. So <laughs> Playmate of the Year is flirting with me on the beach. This, and they're paying me for this. So I said, well, let's go out. to." The, I said, this is your first acting job, isn't it? She says, oh, yes, I'm excited. And I said, why don't we fool them? Why don't you just pretend that I picked you up on the beach? All right, and she's. I can do that. So, she, well, I'm arm in arm. I walk onto the boat right past Tom Cruise, Playmate of the Year, you know, on my arm. And Tom is just looking at me with this incredulous look, and I went, "It's the star, Tom." You know, <laughs> it's the second time I got him because <laughs> we made a really funny looking couple, you know. Oh, yeah. And the second she was on the boat, she turned and says, anyone mind if I go topless? And everyone, no, I'd be fine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it made it a lot of fun doing that, uh, you know. You got to meet people like that. Holly Hunter was a scream. And Gene Hackman, um, he did Gypsy Moss with Burt uh, Bert Lancaster. I got to talk to him about the filming the first good skydiving movie. You can find it. It's a lot of fun. It's in color. It's all para commanders, and it's a great old movie to watch because it's a bunch of uh, three stunt divers going barnstorming around the Midwest, and Deborah Kerr is in it, Burt Lancaster. I mean, it's a pretty good movie, and most skydivers haven't seen it, so look that up. But anyway, I talked to, to him about it. He's a flown many, many, uh, many, many airplanes. He's owned like 28 different small sport airplanes, Gene Hackman. Great guy. You know, so. You've been in probably, I'm not going to say the best skydiving movie ever, but my favorite skydiving movie ever, Cutaway. Cutaway, yeah. Cutaway. That was also another one. Have you done any other movies or any? I, I, I did um, Drop Zone too, but I was cut. I was captain of a competing team, and our team looked too sharp, so they cut us. <laughs> <laughs> You're too good. You're out of here. We're, too, yeah, we're in the cutting room floor, but I'm in the director's cut of that one. So I, I thought I was going to be a big movie star. Um, some of these royalty checks, I, I, the, the best one I got was for one penny. <laughs> you know, At first, they were good. I'd get like $5,000 checks every time the firm showed. You know, So it was kind of worth it. I mean, I said three words, and I must have been paid ten thousand dollars each for those words. It's it's a good good you know good gig. Uh, yeah, I can take that. Yeah, mm. nice work if you can get it. I say a lot more than three words, man. Pay me a dollar for further each of those. I'd be good to go. Yeah, but just hanging out with all these movie stars in Grand Cayman for a couple of weeks was a lot of fun. It really was. I uh, just doing the tour recently uh, of uh, UPT. You you mentioned the Playboy Playmate, and it really completely changes the topic you yeah. have a rig there that some playmates you have never asked to that you well, yeah. use so my ten thousandth rig i decided to make it worth ten thousand dollars and the only way i could do it was to pad it with mink plate the hardware gold and put a couple of diamonds in the hardware so i made this and you'd have to be old or watch a lot of reruns there was a um 
uh, a series called The Waltons, and Judy Norton mm-hmm. Taylor was the young girl, maybe she was 12, 13, 14, when it started, and she's the one that said, good night, John Boy, which ended the thing every time. She became a skydiver oh. and a playmate. So she was at the land skydiving, and I showed her the mink rake, and she said, I think I can get that in the magazine. So anyway, she did. It's jumping out over Hollywood with a nice white teddy on, you know, at night. It's a very tasteful picture. And so... Um, that's how that rig, and, and the joke I give is this rig, I've jumped this rig, a playmate's jumped this rig, I never got to jump the playmate. <laughs> so that's the joke that my wife hates. So, <laughs> Does your wife jump? Uh, she's made 10 tandems. Okay. Yeah. I, for As you well know, for many years I dealt with Terry through tandem uh, applications. Applications, yeah. yeah, she was in charge of that. Yeah, I think about nine years ago, if I remember right, 10 years ago is when we switched over to Cheryl. Yeah, So. Yeah. So I, I've, I've got to meet Terry. She is such a nice lady, such a wonderful lady. She is. She is. She goes everywhere with me. We were in, in Antarctica this last year. You know, uh, I, well, I'll get into that story, I guess, if we might as well just slip all over the place. Um, in 1990, I was invited to Russia uh, to show off tandem. It had been seven years, but uh, the Russians were interested in it. So I went there, and there was a bunch of generals watching, and I had just jumped with the East German-style champion, uh, Summer in Moscow. And this general's come up and says, well, says, comrade, this works well on a nice summer day with a pretty girl, but could you take me to a remote location, this general? And I said, I could put your ass in the North Pole in the dead of winter. And I'm talking to the general that's in charge of the North Pole, basically. He's Arctic Rescue. And he <laughs> says, really? You know? So about three months later, I get a... Uh, a telegram. He was back down that long ago. And it says, Comrade Booth, you come, you come Moscow. We go North Pole. So he'd set it up. He'd set up 108 people, nine or 10 aircraft, and he wanted to go to the North Pole. He'd never been there, and uh, he was in charge of rescue. So we set up a scenario where a jetliner has crashed on the North Pole, and we've got to get doctors there. Well, it's a long way from the nearest land, all right? It would take probably three or four days in helicopters with fuel drops and everything because they can only go 300 miles at a time. So what they did is they set the helicopters, went up there, and they set uh, ice fuel stations on the ice cap all the way up to the North Pole, and they were ready. We went off, and we took off in one, like C-130, with two others circling for communication because there was no satellites yet. And this was the year, 1991, when the Russian GPS called GLONASS first came out. It was before the U.S. GPS came online in 1992. So we were going to be the first people to go to the North Pole and be able to prove that we had gone to the North Pole because we knew where it was. Because the North Pole is 625 miles from the nearest land in 13,500 feet of water. And the ice is moving up to 10 kilometers a day. So there's nothing there. I went six times. It's different every time. so we went and we did that, and it, it was kind of cool. And um, so what was, what was the beginning of the story about? I get into the story, I forget what, the, what we were talking about. Uh, man, first of all, you've been to the North Pole six oh, times? Oh, that's it, six times. Six oh, my times. gosh. Six times. So after I'd been, I, I've taken about 400 people there. I, I did skydiving. We could, we could get up there for $2,500, $3,500. Now, if you want to go, it's a group of three or four people for twenty five grand each. I recommend if you can do it, do it. Because it's the neatest place on Earth. It's like you're, it's like being on Mars or something. It really is. It's uh, very, very different. It, all you can see is ice for thousands of miles, and the air has no dust and no water vapor, and the sky is purple because of that. It's a neat place. So anyway, I told these guys that I took in 1996 that I had permit finally to go jump the South Pole. I always wanted. I wanted to. Do, I wanted to be the first to do both poles, 
And so they got a permit two weeks ahead of me, went down there. Six of them and three of them died. All right. Uh, they didn't understand the difficulty at the South Pole. Uh, as the Earth spins at the equator, you know, it's going 1,000 miles an hour. And the atmosphere spins out very thick. So sea level pressure down here is much, much higher because the atmosphere is thicker. When you get to the poles, the earth, uh, the, the atmosphere is very, very thin. And there's a big ozone layer. There's just not much atmosphere over the South Pole. So it appears to be 9,200 feet above sea level. But the density altitude is often 14,000, 15,000 feet. And they went up 8,000 feet above that without oxygen. And these four guys got hypoxia. One had an automatic opener that pulled him out of the four-way, and the other guys went in holding hands, you know. <laughs> anyway, they used up their supply of body bags. My trip was canceled, and it's been over 20 years, and I've been unable to get another permit. Skydivers are not allowed at South Pole. So finally, I got permission to jump at Union Glacier, 500 miles from the South Pole, and I figured, God, I'm 72. I might as well get Antarctica in my logbook. I went down there and did it. And in doing it, I became one of the first 10 people to jump on all seven continents. Very few people have jumped in Antarctica after that. Because uh, right when we, we got the capacity to do it, these guys got killed, and they just canned it. No one wanted the risk. So um, still haven't jumped at the South Pole. Now, we went down, and Tom, that you interviewed yesterday, set up a, a tandem down there at the South Pole and actually took paying passengers, like $10,000 a jump. <laughs> It's a billionaire boys club down there. Oh, yeah. It costs. Well, here, here look. It, a jump at the South Pole. Logistics is really bad. North Pole is easy. Russia's all over the place. They can get there easily. You know how we got our gas? All right. There was a Russian backfire bomber base in Shredney Island, 625 miles from the, uh, the North Pole. When they uh, pulled out of the Cold War, they left 300,000 gallons of jet A fuel in tanks there, which is still fine. So we would send helicopters up, put a snowplow in a helicopter, and uh, snowplow the runway. We'd land our jets there and fill up with our gas for free. <laughs> so we could go to the North Pole for $2,500. Now let's look at the South Pole. Nothing's anywhere near it. The nearest point, Punta Arenas, where you take off from at the bottom of Chile, is 2,500 miles, a long way. You need a special airplane to get there and back. Now let's say gas is $5 a gallon in Chile. And by the time you, you put barrels of gas on your jet and you fly it down to Union Glacier, 2,000 miles away, that gas is now worth $50 a gallon, right? But now you can only land at one place in Antarctica because you can't pour a runway because it's too cold. You know, nothing would ever crew. So they found a place where the catabatic winds coming from the high Antarctic plateau and going downwind, downstream, gravity to the, to the ocean, 9,000 feet of fall, come through this canyon, and they sculpted a glacier into hard blue ice. And you can land a jet on that, a Russian IL-76. So that's where you go. So now, if you want to go to the South Pole, you can't take that jet and go there. You need specially equipped ski planes. And the only ones that are, that are good are twin otters. And they have to fly them down there with full of fuel. So if you want to take a twin otter, you can't make it 500 miles. You can only go 250. So from Union Glacier, they sled 255-gallon drums of fuel on a ski machine, you know, on a sled, all the way there. And by the time it gets there, it's $500 a gallon. Mm. All right? So... It's $26,000 to get to Union Glacier in the Russian Isle 76, and another $26,000 to get to the South Pole. This is before you make the jump. You're at 52 grand by the time you get there. <laughs> Man, so it's that an expense. It's a, it's, logistically, it's very, very hard. That's why I say people that are stuck down at Union Glacier will pay $10,000 for a tandem jump because they're bored. 
You know, it's very expensive to get there. I'll never complain about a $25 jump ticket ever again. No. no. <laughs> They're expensive jumps. Everest is, is, is another good. The jump that I, I went on last, June before last was uh, the pyramids, and that's wonderful. It's cheap, and it's politically impossible. It's kind of like jumping on the White House lawn. You're never going to get that permission. You're jumping in Red Square. I tried that. I was three drunk generals close enough of jumping in Red Square. It was. Oh, wow. They promised, but they thought better of it the next day. Anyway... Um, there was a, a, an Egyptian down there who took up skydiving. Dad's a general, and he just uh, said, Dad, can I borrow the C-130 for a party? <laughs> you know, And that's how it started. And now there's three different competing companies doing it down there. Um, until someone gets hurt, you're going to be able to do it. But sooner or later, they're going to close it down. So it's wonderful, it's exciting, it's beautiful, and it's cheap. So do it. <laughs> you. So what was it like to jump in Egypt? Well, I mean, you got the Sahara Desert as a drop zone. I mean, talk about a big pit, all right? Except where the pyramids are in Giza, Cairo has come around it in a horseshoe. You know, it's, you're open at one end for 3,000 miles of desert, but, and you look down at Cairo, and it's this twisted mass of unpainted buildings without windows and, and streets with no rules, and you, you figure if you're going to you have a bad spot, you're dead. And, and so that's kind of the problem. And this last jump that they did, a bunch of guys landed in downtown Cairo. I, I watched the videos of it. I, it's, they're dodging traffic, you know, and no one got killed. It was kind of scary. So it's an easy jump. It really is. So you get out there, and there are the pyramids. And in free fall, they don't look really real. You get under canopy, you look down, and you go, holy crap. How did they build these things? You look at the alignment of them, and you feel like this god floating over the construction of the pyramids. And you think... I just can't believe that humans did this 4,000 years ago. These were the tallest structures in the world for over 3,500 years. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, uh, it's really amazing. And it's, uh, it's the only way to arrive at the pyramids, really. The first time I arrived at the pyramids was under parachute. You know, it's the way to go. The silly skydiver in me and then the silly man in me, I, I, I've never really been as interested to see the pyramids. As awesome it would be, there's so many things in this world to see. Mm-hmm. But if you can combine those two, and that's actually oh, skydiving yeah. over the pyramids is very much in my interest. Well, I mean, I kind of started this idea of expedition skydiving. It's kind of fun to do. Uh, the first one, I, I jumped off El Cap in 1980 when it was legal uh, with Carl Banish, you know, for that one month. And then um, Angel Falls. And then there's this beautiful... Um, it's a Tipui, a table mountain. It's uh, kind of looked like you know the Devil's Mountain that uh, Close Encounters of Third uh, Third Kind mm-hmm. was filmed next to. But that's 800 feet tall. This is 4,000 feet tall. It's in the middle of a jungle, surrounded by headhunters, pygmy headhunters, mm-hmm. and they believe that heaven is there. They believe that this is a trunk of a big tree, and when it was felled by myth- mythical creatures, the all the fruits fell down, and it, they made all the different uh, people and animals in the world. So it's a creation myth. It's heaven up there. So the Catholic missionaries are down there trying to stop them from headhunting, and they look up at this mountain, and right at, um, uh, just before dark, they saw what they thought were flying dinosaurs coming out of the caves in this mountain. There's caves up 3,000 feet above the jungle floor, and they're thinking, maybe dinosaurs still live here. So the BBC wants to go quietly, so they don't scare them away, parachute on top of this mountain, go down on ropes 1,000 feet to the caves. And so I'd just come up with tandem. This is 1984. And so they'd heard about me, and they invited me to come and, and take the, fa- the film crew that weren't jumpers on top of this remote mountain, 200 yards across up top, 4,000 feet down, jungle, unbroken jungle, with pygmy headhunters. And I said, this is fun. <laughs> that was my first real adventure. We spent two weeks on it, went down there. What we found was gigantic fruit bats 
with wingspans of seven feet that looked just like dinosaurs to me. And I remember sleeping in that cave the first night. I said, I hope these guys just eat fruit. (laughs) 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 But uh, And then at the end of that little adventure, we got back up there, and and we were uh, military helicopters came and arrested us as spies. It was right after the Falklands. We were a British-American expedition, and they took me, the parachutes, and all the rope climbing equipment off first, uh, landed. The helicopter was circled with six guys with Uzis, pimple-faced kids, you know, pointing machine guns at me. Remember the pilot saying, you in a heap of trouble, son. <laughs> they handcuffed me to this damn sticker tree and went back to get the producer and our military advisor, Colonel Ernesto Garcia Salar, came off the mountain spit-shined with the film. They were going to confiscate the film and ransom us, you know. And I remembered the producer saying, they're getting this film over my dead body. So when the helicopter landed and all the guys cocked their guns, I skittled around to the back of the sticker tree, <laughs> not wanting to be in fire. So they get out, and our colonel is like a spit shine. He's perfect off there. He went over to the captain of the guard, and he's talking to him. Suddenly he grabbed him, took out his service uh, gun, stuck it in the guy's ear, and dragged him back into the missionary uh, little church on the field there. And all these guys are nervous going around like this. They don't know what to do. He got on the radio and called his troops that came in in Ueys, fast rope down in about three hours, and chased off the guys that were holding us. You know, And all the time, the people on the mountain thought, we're left. They've taken... They've taken all our food, everything going to let us die up here. No climbing equipment or anything like this. Um, so after we got rescued and he chased off the other guys, I found an old kiddie pool that was there with the missionary, and I filled it with beer and ice and sent it back in the chopper, and they saw it land with the cold beer. you know, Because <laughs> we've been out there two weeks, 120-degree uh, weather with no facilities at all. So that was a fun skydive. So it wasn't so much the skydive, it was what went into it and around it, out of a DC-3 onto a remote mountain where you couldn't miss. And the North Pole was kind of the same way. What's it like when it's wind chill is going to be 105 below? You just don't know. So those are the fun jumps that I've done. And that's really, I think, what I wanted to hear the most today as we sit here and talk is walking around your house at one time, you had so many, I'm going to say straight the word, artifacts laying around your house from things you've, travels you've made I actually remember seeing pictures of the North Pole expedition on one wall and, and yeah. really checking that out. At some point, I think I saw a, a, a jawbone of a woolly mammoth. Yeah, yeah. We, as 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 it's warming in the tundra, there these these uh, frozen woolly mammoths that died twenty five thousand years ago are showing up. And so, for a bottle of vodka, I traded for the tusks and the jawbone with teeth. I mean, perfectly yeah. not fossilized, but preserved white teeth in a woolly mammoth skull. You know, I couldn't bring the um, the ivory trade is illegal, and so we realized we'd never get those tusks. They were 100 inches long. So we cut them up into about 25, 2, 3-inch deep pieces, you know, and, and gave them to everybody. But I snuggled the jawbone back, which is massive. It weighs nearly 50 pounds inside a tandem rig. <laughs> 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 it, was, it was a lot of fun getting that stuff out of there. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, I took a Yanomami. Uh, these are the pygmy headhunters. Um, okay. And they have... Um, Another funny story. They still have shrunken heads hanging by the hair from their belts, the warriors, you know. And I'm there with Father Jerome, the Catholic priest down there, is trying to stop this, eating the brains of your enemy, you know. And uh, I said, they're all pointing at me and laughing. And I, I went over and I said, what is it? And he went over and he asked and he came back and said, you better stay with me. They're all envisioning you as an upside down white shrunken head hanging from your beard. <laughs> 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 uh, that's a <laughs> run and hide moment. Yeah. <laughs> so I only took one of these guys, and you know he was about oh four feet tall, and I put him in the harness, 
And I hooked him up, and I could just walk around with him. And uh, the, uh, the priest gave him the directions of how to hold his body, and he went into it, and he stayed that way until after landing. He didn't change like this. And I landed with him. And these guys had, had just rarely seen airplanes, and much less a skydive. So I took, I wanted to take a primitive person on a skydive. And all the women were over the parachute and looking at it and holding it. And I went over to the father again. I said, what are they talking about? And they're saying, they want to know how you wove parrot feathers into such a beautiful cloth. Because they figured the parachute must be made of feathers because it flies. You know, so we had fun. We stayed with them. They had neat drugs. They, their whole culture is drugs. They poison everything. <laughs> they have... They have frogs that are in little pouches, leather pouches, and they have blowgun darts, and this is your pet poison frog. And you see a monkey you want, you take one of your blowgun darts and you stick it into the poison sack this frog has. Stick it in this little, uh, well, their blowguns are five or six feet long. It takes two of them to hold it, and they, they shoot the monkeys, you know. And and then for fish, they, they dump this, uh, this powder in the stream, and all the fish float up paralyzed. So all their food is poisoned. We were warned not to eat it, you know. Like this, but they church is very interesting down there. The medicine man had shaved his head like a monk, right in the back here. And so churches, you come in and you sit down across the table, and they've got a blowgun that's about three feet long, and he's got a mortar and pestle, and he grinds up this bark called they called yopo into a fine powder, and they put it in there and they shotgun the guy across the uh, the table, all right, who immediately starts convulsing, and they tie him up into a hammock, and that's a religious experience, you know. Um, so one of the guys who's a big druggie on our expedition, he says, let me try this stuff. And he just took this tiny <laughs> little bit, and he went, he says, well, it's not cocaine. He says, it's a cross between mescaline and peyote. <laughs> Out he was, going like this, you know. He says, I'm taking this stuff home. I don't know if it ever hit here. But um, so these are the, the adventures that go with the skydives that make it more fun. So of all the adventures you've gotten to take, skydiving or not skydiving, yeah. what has been your favorite one? Well, I, I love those two, Autana. That mountain, in, in, it's in the Amazonas region of Venezuela in the North Pole the first time. Uh -huh. was, North Pole was thrilling because I was pretty much, uh, Norman Ken and I were the first Americans since 1917 to go outside Moscow, really, or Kiev. Uh, I remember they, uh, they took us up to Vorkuta inside, the, uh, inside the, uh, the Arctic Circle, and they let all the kids out of school to look at Americans. They thought maybe we had horns. They thought we had beards, of course, at this point. But they had this gigantic radar. It's the biggest thing I'd ever seen. And um, I got back, and I'm, I got back into the shop, and I walk in, and it's a CIA guy, armed. And he said, I need to talk to you. And he says, you were seen with General Amlinkin going into, you know, this, this thing. And I says, what did you do? And they said, well, we saw this and that. And, and, uh, and, and they said, where'd you go next? And we flew up to Vercuta. And he says, oh, do you know anything about the radar system there? And he said, well, would you like to look at my pictures? He said, you have pictures? You know? <laughs> And, this was, and he took all my good pictures. So we go to Columna, the first place we went. It's where they make the MiG-25s. And I'm introduced to this general, and we're flying our airplane from there up to Siberia the next day. And this general has got dinner prepared for the Americans. So we walk into a hangar. Outside, there's MiG-25s, as far as I can see, with ratty covers on them. They're, like, rusting in place. And we're thinking, this is a year before Glasnost, really. And we're thinking, they got no fleet at all. I walk into a hangar, and the general nods, and the sergeant pulls this big lever, and the whole hangar starts sinking. And we go down 200 feet into a massive cave with brand-new MiG-25s everywhere with seven more hangars. And he says, those jets are for your satellites. This is my fleet. <laughs> and I said, you're going to shoot me now. <laughs> and it's the first time I hear, no, Glasnost, comrade. <laughs> 
<laughs> Man, it, the things you've seen. It's kind of funny. You've got some crazy stories. Yeah. I wonder if there's a, a moment that you've feared for your life more than any other moment. Never in skydiving. It's always... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Never in Scott have I had an engine out in my airplane, and I had to go into a tiny field and, and could have got killed easily. But uh, no, that was your nothing. first leak, wasn't it? Yeah, that was my second one. Okay. My second one. Yeah, the engine went out on it. But mechanic put it together wrong. But in 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 all my years of skydiving, I have had two I've had two malfunctions. Um, one in a pair of commander in nineteen sixty oh seven or eight. You know. Oh, here's another story. Pull and punch. Remember. Throw the reserve out, okay? Yeah. I'd been taught that. I just got the para commander, and I got a 20-foot big reserve on there. So I'm up here talking to Gary Dupuis, which really started skydiving here in land. He's the real hero here. And he says, what? You got a para commander? You got no pilot shooting your reserve, and you don't know how to cut away? So he just, and we were all drunk as hell. He took me to the jump shack that was there, you know, with little in the middle of an orange grove and to land here right next to the bar and he hung me up and made me do breakaways and you know pull the reserve the next day i go out first time a spinning malfunction in my pc i'd be dead and we wouldn't be talking to me if it weren't for gary teaching me how to break away that first time <laughs> and this is the same gary I, I think you said he he worked with ken in the yeah uh, yeah he developed in rocky uh, evans yeah. Yeah, he, does, he doesn't get any credit for anything, but he was chief pilot at the Nationals for years. It was always fun to listen to his briefing. He was kind of like the, the comic flight attendant, you know, and he's a very southern drawl, y'all guys, you know. <laughs> we got uh, me, uh, you know, Anna Moxness. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. She was making fun of our y'alls last night because um, we're from Texas, and I say y'all a lot. I do not say y'all for the record. You're from Utah. Well, and the rest of all y'all, uh, yeah, get but away he's, got, with it. he's got five wives, so he makes up for it. Yeah, <laughs> well, look at me, man. Figured out how to make life worse for us. Well, you know, you know what the plural of y'all is, all y'all, all y'all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you said you had two malfunctions in in skydiving. What was the second one? The second, um, I, uh, it was my 69th tandem jump, my first with a paraplegic, and I look up and I've got tension knots, and it's spinning not really quickly, but you know, not very good, and. As you notice, I talk a lot, so my passengers, <laughs> paraplegic girl, you know, I'm really nervous because now I've got her with me. And she said, you're awfully quiet. Is something wrong? <laughs> and I said, yeah, the main parachute didn't quite open right. And she looked up and, and said, it looks fine to me. So I started laughing, you know. <laughs> and I said, I think I can fix it. She said, just go right ahead. And she's just looking out there, and I'm going like this. And after about fooling with it for 10, 15 seconds, I said, you know, I can't fix it. We've got to get rid of it and go into free fall again. She says, oh, good. So I put her in <laughs> position, you know, and broke away. And there, I was, there I'm testing my reserve for the first time. We'd never tested the reserve because how do you do it, you know, in tandem? You really can't do a reserve test in tandem. Where do you put the third parachute? You can't put it on the passenger. They'd be pulled up way in front of you. You know, it's kind of a dirty little secret. You know, So I'm doing the first hand reserve deployment. So as the reserve you know, is opening, I'm watching the stress, you know, it's going like this, and I'm going, you know, like this. And she says, looked up and said, is this one better than the last one? I went, yes. <laughs> and she says, well, then calm down. What's that over there? <laughs> That's a strong woman right there. Wow. Oh, she's a strong woman, yeah. So you've had two malfunctions. How many skydives do you have? 6,500. Man, I, I have, I'm at 8,503. Um, yeah, well, you're good. You're good. I, I, I think you know, anything, anyone that gets a malfunction more than every 2,000 jumps um, you know, needs to rethink his <laughs> sport. Um, although in the early days of tandem, about 300 was average. You know, we've come a long way from there. We had one group up at Delmarva. They have six or seven tandem rigs. And bunches of different people packing, bunch of different tandem masters, and they 
In our annual survey reported there'd been 15,000 jumps without a main malfunction, <laughs> which is amazing. Uh, and it, the m next month they had one. <laughs> so that's the record. But I know a lot of drop zones that have gone 10,000 between malfunctions. I can't tell you our numbers right now because I, I don't know the numbers. But we actually, so as tandem instructors and tandem owners, we agree to report all malfunctions and injuries to UPT. And yeah. I think we'd agree that most people don't. Yeah, probably they don't. They're scared yeah. that, you know. And yeah. they, they, don't, they don't report the stupid stuff people yeah. do. I will tell anybody out there listening, we do at Space Land Houston report all of ours. Yeah. Um, we have never had an issue. We've never had a problem. We're very honest with what we have. And we went two years between our last, like I just filed, I refiled the reports uh, for Space Land. I filed the report. I'm like, when's the last? It, it's been a while. I, I think I while. might be off on the two-year mark, but it has been a while since we've had to do it. We, it's Gear's reliable. We're better-minded. We've been trained way better Mm -hmm. then I've only been skydiving 23 years, and how I've been trained versus how somebody's trained today is a night and day difference. That's why tandem jumping should be more dangerous, but it's, uh, it's three to five times safer than sport jumping. Because there's, there's five simple reasons. Training is one. You've got a lot of extra training in there, all right? Everyone's opening high. <laughs> Everyone has an automatic opener. Everyone has a marred. All right? mm -hmm. And we don't allow swooping in tiny canopies. If you put those five things into our skydiving here, our fatalities would be less than 10, maybe down to five. We have the fatality rate we want, all right, because we know how to make it safer and we choose not to, which is, you know, boost law number two is fairly famous. As skydiving gets safer, people take more risk to keep the fatality rate level. And I see that, you know. I, I've been doing this, you know, uh, a long time, and so I've watched fads come through. Rammers first came out, we had a hell of a lot of injuries and fatalities with Rammers. People figured out how to do it. Um, swooping started a hell of a lot. I mean, it, in one year it was like three quarters of the fatalities. Mm -hmm. This year it was still bad landings were seven out of the 15. You know, I don't know that all of those were swoops, but they were bad landings. Pretty much with a round parachute, if you didn't hit the trees or the power line to the water, once the parachute opened, you weren't going to get killed. <laughs> Just so, break your ankles. You might break your ankles very often, <laughs> but you weren't going to get killed. An open parachute, that was kind of the end of the danger, but not anymore. It's just starting, especially if you're a swooper. Yeah. Yeah. At some point worldwide, we were over 50% fatality under good canopies, canopy collision, low terms yep, of tension. Yep. Worldwide, 50%. This last year was an exception, but the three years prior in the U.S., and I'm so proud of our, our, our partners in crime, in other words, other skydivers and our yep. peers, 24 and 25% of our fatalities were, and it's 24, 25, 25, or 24, 24. It's, yeah. it's those numbers. For three years straight, we had less than a quarter of our fatalities. We're, were, we're little canopies, but we, we, we could eliminate that quarter. And, uh, and this year it was, um, maybe it's 25 that were attempting swoops, but seven on landing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fully open canopies. Uh, people are getting better. They, they get better at things. Well, look at, look at the fatality rate of, of proximity flying. There were 18 killed in, in one summer in Sweden or something. I'm trying to steal your phone. Yeah, almost. There were, were so many uh, killed. People will accept very high rates. Uh, it used to be that mountain climbing and uh, I think motocross racing were the most dangerous sports, but now it's uh, proximity flying. And look at most space jumpers. I mean, nearly 100 years ago, we learned it was really stupid to jump without two parachutes, <laughs> and they're doing it constantly. So um, I guess people, we get the fatality rate we deserve. And we get the fatality rate we want. It's down to that point. I, I, people say, can you make gear better? And I said, there's no sense. 
because 95% of the fatality rates are, are caused by humans, 5% by gear problems, which are usually caused by humans. So if I made perfect gear that never, ever malfunctioned, fatality rates would only drop by 2.5%. <laughs> I, I have friends, and I don't know if I'll agree with this statement, but I have friends who say, I don't agree with the why mod. Why not? Because if you idiot-proof the system, the idiots will get more idiotic. No, I, I'm the first person to, number one, if you can't, adjust a harness with 12 adjustment points correctly, how is putting 13 on going to help? Secondly, the Y-Mod is hanging down there, and we've already had people catch it on the steps of Cessnas. Uh, so I always you know, predicted it would probably kill as many people as it saved. But the FAA was just being really loud about it. You have anyone else fall out of a harness, that's it for tandem jumping. Yeah. Well, they, they couldn't have followed through because their mandate says they've got to guarantee an equivalent level of safety, and if we go back to static line training, we're not going to do that. You know, so we put them on there, and uh, again, it's one more thing to worry about, one more thing to catch, um, and one more reason that jumpers won't put the harness on correctly because it's got a Y mod, so I don't have to now. You know, and I don't know. Someone takes all of their weight on their coccyx. That's not going to be pretty. You're going to break backs. You know, but it's it's just like airbags and seatbelts. They kill some people and they save some people. And as long as they save more people than they kill, it's a good idea. And how do you know? You wait 10, 15 years. You know, there's a rule in the land here. We're trying to get a stop sign at an intersection where there are a lot of crashes. And he said, no, nah, you got to have a fatal crash or we won't consider it. So you got to have dead bodies before they'll spend the money. And getting a traffic light in where there's stop signs, you need three fatal crashes. You know, so safety apparently has a price, and that's the way it is. Right across the street here, there is the, um, the sheriff's department there, and they have a big sign out front that says fatalities last year in Volusia County, fatalities this year. We watch, watch it go to zero on, um, on uh, January 1st, and we watch it climb all year. It's like clockwork. It's almost exactly 100 every year. I mean, it, you could just predict it. it, it I don't know why. It, it's a number that represents human frailty. Like in skydiving, the number is one, one in 100,000. One in 100,000 sport jumps is a fatality. Okay? One in 100,000 hours flying in light aircraft is a fatality. One in 100,000 trips down the Grand Canyon in a raft is a fatality. So apparently humans can do something 100,000 times in a row without screwing up bad enough to get killed. So I call it the number of human frailty, <laughs> one in 100,000. And it, 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 I found it, I'm looking for it in a lot of other different places. When I found it in the Colorado River, I went, I'm on to something. Yeah. Um, but uh, skydiving is not perfectly safe. If it were, would we be doing it? I asked people that question. If no one ever got killed, would it be the same thrill? If you knew you couldn't get killed, would you still do it? It's a rush. It's, it's yeah. scary. I, I love telling new jumpers, if you're not afraid, you're kind of dumb. Dumb. You just have to learn how to control and embrace <sighs> that fear to allow it to empower you to have the time of your life. It, yeah. If, if, if there wasn't the rush, it wouldn't be so much fun. Skydiving is, is mind over matter. It's mind over your body. You're getting close to that door the first time. The body is screaming, no, no, no. And the mind is saying, I've thought about this. I have the capacity to do this correctly. And you do it. And so your mind is, is, is silencing one of your most powerful instincts, you know, falling. And it, there's a famous quote that says, where did man get this propensity to fall out of the air, aircraft? It, uh, it's not inherited because in the past, people that fell long distances failed to produce offspring. And I always like that, you know, you can't inherit it. Um, and skydivers tend to have girls, especially skydivers and scuba divers. You notice that? Apparently... Male-producing sperm are very wimpy, and rapid pressure changes kills them. So you look at Navy SEALs, 
All their kids are girls. <laughs> so if you want, if you're looking for a girl, go scuba diving and skydiving. You know, and there you go. You get your girl, baby. <laughs> so what, what we're talking about having kids, uh, we called your your accomplishments my my five children. Yeah. And I know that any any reasonable parents not supposed to say that they love any one of their children more than any of the others, right? Yeah. But I just wondered since your uh, children don't these children don't have feelings, yeah. may, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe you'd pick out a favorite out of your five children. I, you know, I guess the three ring release, uh, the hand to play pilot. It was so simple. And the three-ring took six different releases that I put out before it. So it, it took me a year to work it out. The Skyhawk took me 18 years to work out before I got it all down to the point where I could use it. I had it pretty much designed, but it had a fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw was if the RSL riser goes first because it breaks or you release it first, um, you're going to pull that pilot chute right into the still-attached reserve. And uh, I couldn't do it. Until the, the idea of the Collins lanyard got dumped into my lap. So there's a funny story. I hire a guy named Kyle Collins. He's a graduate uh, Georgia Tech engineer. I hired two of them. And I'm at lunch with him the first day I hired him, and I'm telling him my problem about not being able to put the skyhook out. And he says, well, why don't you? And I went, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, there it was. So we went, we built it in an hour, and had it jumped in two. You know, just like that. And uh, But then... It's a new system, and it's part of the reserve. So I said, I can't put the Skyhook out and the Collins lanyard out at the same time. So I decided to put the Collins lanyard out first because the Skyhook can't go without it. And so I did that for about eight years, and it didn't cause any problems. That's how long it takes for a reserve system before you cross your fingers, eight, ten years. And, um, and then I put the Skyhook out. So it took about 18 years. <laughs> So it was you, the most work. Uh, you had that skyhook in your pocket then, just waiting for it. Waiting for that problem to be solved. I put it on back burner, you know. And um, so I'm, I'm glad I didn't patent it at first because then it would have been halfway through its patent life before it was actually usable. Yeah. <laughs> what, man, I'm going to go back to a couple of these inventions. What motive, or not what motivated you, what was the inspiration for the three ring release? Did you find something somewhere else that helped inspire it? Well, I mean, I. Remember, I, I wanted to come up with a release that uh, was simpler, and you needed to release both risers at once. There's no reason to release one. And you were going to be spinning, and you get, uh, you know, G-lock. Uh, you, you go kind of batty as the blood drains from your head when you're spinning. So I wanted something simple. I wanted something that didn't need a safety. All releases need safeties because the primary purpose of a relief, release is not to release. It's got to hold 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 times and release once. All right? So it has to be something that won't come apart but does come apart when you need it. And I didn't want something that could snag. So um, I, I realized, I learned in high school physics, there's three machines. What, what my problem was I needed to control a large force, your weight, opening shock, spinning, with a small force, the pull of a hand. So I needed mechanical advantage. You know, in a capo, it's mechanical advantage. It's two sliding levers in opposite directions. Um, so there, there's three ways to do it. One is the pulley. You know, block and tackle, you can, by pulling a long way, you can lift a heavy weight a short distance. And the other is a, a lever. You know, a seesaw works, and you put the fulcrum off center, and you, by pushing one a long distance, you can lift a very heavy weight at the other end. And the other is the inclined plane, or the screw. And so I tried all three of those. The screw is very complicated. It works. You would rotate a, um, well, it's complicated anyway. 
uh, and it would be subject to malfunction. The first thing I tried was levers, you know, pretty much a block and tackle, taking a piece of cord and wrapping it around uh, between two links. But you needed a long piece of cord, and it would tend to get rigid uh, if it got wet and it was cold, and uh, it wouldn't work releasing low-drag malfunctions. And I went to levers, but I put a lever one lever through. I had to put a lever in fabric, in, in webbing. It would be easier to show these pictures. I'm uh, putting it through uh, two links and wrapping it around. And uh, the trouble there was if the links went sideways, it would jam. And we had long distances to travel again. So I decided, well, let's make the levers round. So I put a round lever inside a ring. But because it has to fit through the ring, it wasn't long enough to get enough mechanical advantage. I needed at least 50 to 1. And putting that one ring through, it's only 10 to 1. So I said, well, I'll just put another ring through. It'll be at least 20 to 1. And I realized, no, it's 100 to 1. It's 10 times 10. And then by putting the loop on, one half of the loop is sewn down. One half goes through a grommet and has a little cable in it. So that cuts it another 100%. Now you're down to 200 to 1. So with the force of, 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 uh, of uh, one pound, I can release a load of 200 pounds. So I was really fine there. So with the force of five pounds, I could release a, a load of 1,000 pounds, which is all you really ever need. So there was the three-ring. And it was, again, put together very cheaply. Now, the Collins lanyard, I actually, uh, it, I, I, yeah, I learn something every day, and I always love mm-hmm. hearing you tell the stories. But I had always heard the Collins lanyard was brought about because of poor riser manufacturing, and we were afraid that if the RSL riser would break first and non-RSL riser wouldn't break, the release. Yeah, but yeah. that wasn't the only, I mean, that was part of the reason. Well, that, but that's, it was, one, that's one reason. I mean, we, were just, we had just come up with uh, mini risers in tandem, we were using Type 8 risers. They were breaking all the time. You know, we, we finally went to Type 7 risers, got bigger, sturdier rings and everything. But there's a lot of reasons one riser can release. You can forget, for instance, to put the white loop after it leaves the riser through the loop, the grommet on the end of the housing. I watched a guy come in, flare, just as his foot touched the ground, a riser left. As soon as the load left the system because he forgot to do that. That happens all the time. On tandem, you can push the three-ring down and have it locked down. An opening shock, that riser is going to break the, the white loop and it's going to release. It's always the left riser, too, um, for good reason. Um, so there's lots of reasons. The loops can wear out. I've, I've caught people with the loops that were frayed almost to falling apart. Or you can have the yellow cables that release the three-ring at different lengths, the wrong lengths. And when you pull and you feel the first one release, you stop pulling. That happens all the time. So there's a half dozen reasons why you release one riser without the other. And so a Mard without a Collins lanyard, to me, is just not worth it. Now, people are doing it, but to me, if there's a glaring defect in an invention, I won't put it out until I figure out that problem. I think that's proven uh, not just by your word, but by UPT and Vector and what what you guys have stood for over the years from Mm -hmm. the relative workshop to, to United Parachutes Technologies. And very successful company. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, and I, I don't know if Tom Noonan knows the exact numbers either, but he likes to say in the field that about 80% of the world's market, tandem market, is the Sigma rig. Yes. Man, if that many people are jumping that rig, there's something right going on somewhere. Well, I had 80% of the market when I had the only person with a hand deploying three ring, too. Yeah. I could have had 100%. But uh, again, you really can't do that to an industry. You've no. got to let it out. You know, so um, Skyhook is licensed. Anyone who wants it can have it. And I'm surprised that people put out other things. Why would they? Because this has been proven for 18 years, you know, and so why should you stick your neck out with something else? I mean, the thing works very well. 
Nothing's perfect. The Skyhawk is designed with the default, it falls apart. It very, it's kind of like catching a fish without a barb in the hook. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of fish can wiggle off. But if the Skyhawk comes apart, it's probably because your reserve pilot sheet's doing a great job. You're not at that lower end where you really need that, uh, that hard pull from the uh, malfunction main. So they come apart sometimes. But uh, generally, you, you can't tell it till you see the video because you had a fast, really fast reserve deployment because the reserve pilot sheet was pulling harder than the broken away main, and that happens. So it's designed to make up its mind, which is pulling harder. And so it's a simple idea, but it, it took me three or four years to get it together and then waiting for, for, to hire Kyle Collins, you know, to, uh, to come up with the Collins lanyard. <laughs> so. so we were fortunate enough to take a tour of, of UPT before we came mm-hmm. over here. And we spent some time in your office and uh, lots of great pictures that were connected to uh, some, some of the stories that, that we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. There's uh, one picture that stood out a lot more to me than any of the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big difference being uh, it was the one photo where you didn't have a beard. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't have a beard forever. <laughs> so I, I graduated with a, uh, a degree in music education. I was a high school band director. And you're just knocking up back in the 60s have beards, you know, and, and work in the public schools. So I had to pretty much have a, pretty much a crew cut, you know, and, and everything like this. And I, I said, man, when I get my own company someday, no one's going to tell me to shave. And so I stuck with it. And I haven't shaved since I started uh, Relative Workshop, you know, and quit teaching. You know, because why not? I've heard some some myths about the power that lives in your beard. Oh yeah, lots I, of power. I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know if you hear those stories. Well, you know what would happen if Colonel Sanders shaved off the goatee? No one would buy the fried chicken, right? <laughs> you know, maybe. <laughs> so the beard's kind of become a trademark, I guess. I heard a story about uh, some of your beard ending up in someone's cutaway handle. Is oh this yeah, a true I've, got, story? I've got this one customer that thinks if he has one of my beard hairs in his cutaway handle, everything's going to be just fine for him, and so. He's bought a bunch of rigs and a bunch of cutaway handles, so every so often I get a request for a beard here, and they sew it into his cutaway handle. <laughs> it's kind of... It, it, well, it, I mean, he's still making the request. He's still jumping. It works. Yes, it works. It works every time. It, it, it's funny. I, I'm a Mozart freak, and I, I went on Mozart's 250th anniversary from, uh, from Prague, where he uh, debuted... Uh, uh, Don Giovanni down to Salzburg where he was born and we went through all these places and it was every place that Mozart had visited in this thing and they all had locks of Mozart's hair you know like they're, they're all different colors <laughs> so a lot of it wasn't real I guess but that uh, my beard hairs are all 100% real do you upcharge for that beard no, hair? no we, we don't <laughs> it's funny beard hair is different than head hair and I found this out I can feel it you know it just right. it feels different and I was riding with a friend and his, uh, his a policeman in the car, and one of my bearders got stuck in his seatbelt. So he took it into the crime lab and said, analyze this, and it came back horsetail. So actually, I am a horse's ass. <laughs> you know, that's what he told me. <laughs> and I, I, I would wonder what would happen if you shaved off the beard. Recently, I shaved off my beard, and, and yeah. by no means do I have a beard like yours, but I've, everybody knows me to have a beard. It's something that's been known. This is... I would say one of my shorter trim beards. You've probably seen me in the past. With yeah, a, the longer one, yeah. Yep. And uh, when I shaved off my beard, I, like you, am a pro- prolific speaker. I like to talk a lot. Yeah. And I walked on the drop zone, and I didn't say a word for the day because I knew the second they heard my voice, they'd, they'd like, know who it was. And I just, I would stand next to people and just stand there and look at them. And they, like, one of our packers, a young lady named Ivy, she was like, I was getting creeped out because this dude was staring at me. Yeah. Just looking at me. I'm like, what the, do you want, dude? 
Bill, if you, if you ever shave that beard, you need to just travel around to different drop zones and see how many tandem classes you can sit through before somebody no, recognizes this, Yeah, I know. I figured I was going to rob a bank and then shave, and they'd never be able to find me. No, nobody will know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, I, I, one of my employees, I remember years ago, um, had a beard was shorter than that. And uh, he shaved it all off with the mustache. And he came into work, and all I said, how'd you grow a mustache so fast? <laughs> so all I, all I noticed, I didn't notice the, uh, the beard being gone because uh, the mustache was standing out. So, yeah, it's been, uh, the, I've had the beard for 40 years. It used to be down to my uh, knees. And I remember one time I, I zipped it up in my fly. I couldn't get anyone, male or female, to help me. I said, could you help me with this? And they no, it's here on your own with this one, Booth. <laughs> <laughs> and... So, and I, one time, I braided my beard when I jumped now, because one time I got this part of it caught in the three ring, and my head was pulled up looking like this. Look, I, you can't see, but I'm looking hard up to the right, you know? And I couldn't get it out, and I didn't want to break away, so I just made right turns, you know, and, and, <laughs> all the way down. But I almost died of a beard three ring entanglement, which I thought would be so poetic. I encourage tandem instructors to carry a hook knife for very obvious reasons. Yeah. And in my tandem training course, I will tell them I have actually used a hook knife twice on tandem skydives. Ah. Both times, a young lady's hair, hair was com- yeah. <laughs> tangled. In, with it, you should, you know, that hair flies up like that. Mm-hmm. We had a, a guy that's a tandem master, and he was a barber, and he'd go out with some people and with the scissors, and they had hair standing up like that, and he'd be sitting there getting <laughs> haircuts because he's perfectly <laughs> held up. I remember that. We've had a lot of fun with tandem. I'll, I'll tell you how tandem got going. It was hard to convince people to become a tandem master. It really was. So I'm at Freak Brother Convention. Tandem's been out a couple years. And uh, we're training, of course. And this South African uh, graduates. And the first person he takes the next day, this girl under canopy, says, this is making me really hot. We've got to do it. Land in the cornfield. So he drags his ass back in after a while with his story. Next day, we got 20 guys in line want to be tandem masters. Uh, I'd love to find out who this woman was. <laughs> you know, <because laughs> she, she made it very easy for me to find tandem masters. Yeah. If you were a tandem instructor and you cannot get a date, you, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's called the Superman complex. When I, I In rooms of, 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 of tandem masters, I say, how many of you married one of your students and everybody's hand goes up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have been hit on by men, by women. I've had a straight man yeah. say, don't get me wrong, bro. Will but you marry me? me? Yeah, <laughs> really, it's, it's a Lois Lane complex. You know, you're carrying Lois Lane and your arms flying through the sky. Yeah. So, um, Yeah. It was that way with Static Line, too. So, Nick, you should get your tandem rating. Gosh, uh, some of our guests this week are, are piquing my interest, for sure. Wow, I never thought I'd hear him uh, well, say that. Well, when when my first interest in skydiving, I, I really thought that I would be an instructor. When, uh, you know, I, I had maybe had 20 jumps, and the pilot at the time was a really nice guy. He said, you know, you have the same look in your eye as these other guys. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you can, you know, once you've been flying jumpers, you get to you get to see the people who are going to stick around. He said, you have the same passion that these guys have. Yeah. I said, he said, I know it's not going to be long until I see you throwing drogues out here. And that was the first thing, that was the first seat in my head of like, maybe I'm supposed to be a tandem instructor. And then as I continued to skydive, my interest just, just changed. And I started noticing how talented the videographers were. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's my path right there. But the more that I hear people talk about uh, the joys of, of being a tandem instructor... Uh, I, I I get jealous that I've have never been that part of the experience. I well, yeah. you're sitting in a beautiful chair with a wonderful view, and finally you've got someone to talk to. <laughs> I remember my first tandem jump. I would just 
you hadn't thought about it much. I got someone to talk to up here, never before. You know, we did some uh, test jumps for uh, for Kelly for, uh, for Velocity Sports, mm-hmm. and we were using uh, radio comms to, to talk to each other. And that was the first time for me that I've, I've got about 8,000 jumps at the time. This is the first time for me that I've ever shared what's happening in my mind during canopy flight with somebody else. It's a whole lot of fun. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you, I've sang with people in free fall, and you weren't the first one, but... It, the ability to talk to somebody. Now, I'm not a huge advocate for talking somebody into a rating, but hearing you say that, that you might be interested in tandem rating one day, I don't know anybody better to ask this question to than Bill. Mm-hmm. Why should he get a tandem rating? It's a lot of hard work. For me, it was to prove it could be done. Is why, and as a matter of fact, I never got one. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that that I think backfired just now. <laughs> I, I I would be I would be happy to just have the story. Yeah, Bill Booth talked me out of giving the tandem rating. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, Orville Wright never got a pilot's license. Okay, um, I had there was no tandem rating to get. You know and. Um, I'll, t- I'll tell you, let's go back to some early days of tandem. So I've got 10 tandem jumps. I got more, I got 10 times more than anyone in the world. All right. And this cute girl walks into the hangar. All right. And um, this guy next to me, experienced skydiver, you know, best skydiver in the world, says, I want to take her tandem booth. And of course, the tandem rig just had a hand deployed pilot sheet on it. You stayed at the stable exit and you threw the pilot sheet. There was no different to doing a tandem. And I said, okay, you're Tommy Pyrus, you can do it. So he went up there and I watched him jump, all right? And when he jumped off, he just kind of backed off. Her feet were still on the step of the Cessna and they're on their back. He throws the pilot chute, she grabs the pilot chute and hauls it into her chest. And I'm staring at him, he's staring at me in the airplane, you know? And I, I could see his, his um, can we say bad words here? Because <laughs> this is historical. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, okay. <laughs> He, he just looked at me, and he pointed at her holding the pilot. She says, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I didn't tell me about it. So he, he just grabbed the pilot chute, beat her up, and threw it off. All right, so there we go. So, you know, so the next week, this other guy comes and says, I want to take my wife. So he gets out there, and they get out on a, uh, it was a 180, but didn't have the wheel in the way. And so he lets go of the, of the, of the strut, and she doesn't. She's, ha- she's dislocated her shoulders. She's hanging on. His head is in the middle of her back. All right. He can't see a thing. He's like, you know, I had to reach out and pry the girl's hands off. All right. That's when we determined that it might be a good idea for the tandem passengers to grab the harness. So that's where that rule came from. You know, I wasn't smart enough to think about it in the first place. But after seeing what happens without it, that's where all the rules come from. You just wait till people do stupid things and say, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. And after 10 years, you got a safe program because you just I don't think that way. I just. You just don't think that people... I didn't think anyone would twist a belly band and have pilot shoots in tow. It didn't ever dawn on me that people would be that careless. You know, but there it is. That is actually... So I knew for a while hand deploy pilot shoots were belly bands, but Mark was showing us today how yeah. fatal they were by that twist in the belly band. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, never realized that could be a problem. It's, it's, you know, putting it where it is now, where you can't see it and you can't protect it. And if you have gloves on, you can't even feel it. That seems like a crazy idea, but that's where it works the best. When you put in the human equation, you've got a human engineer. The Skyhook is the most human-engineered thing I'd done. Uh, I, I just wanted to be sure that people could, on the other side of the world, could get it and pack it correctly without ever seeing one before. You know, and uh, and it's a complicated system, and it worked out that it's true. Put 
colored picture labels on it. Everything we could for the humans. And everything on design now, the human engineering is more important than making it work against the laws of nature. You've got to put humans in the equation every time. No matter how good my rigor is, he's fallible. And to yeah. simplify that engineering step for him, and, and there's no doubt I, part of tandem training is I want to teach you the skyhook. I want to teach you the Collins lanyard. I want to make sure as a tandem instructor you understand your equipment. And everybody comes into that classroom having, nah, everybody, a lot, no clue. And it's so simple to show them, especially because you guys have that skyhook board. It makes my life easy. Yeah, it does. you got to understand. I understand that three-quarters of young jumpers can't assemble a three-ring now, which may be true. They, oh, don't, they don't really have to, but it would be good if they could spot it if it was put together wrong. You should know. If you don't know how, you need to go learn how. Not because you need to know how, but you need to, you said it, recognize it. Recognize it. Understand the problem. You know, I'm amazed. I'm a scuba diver, and we spend so much more time in the average scuba dive checking each other's equipment, and we never do it skydiving, where total equipment failure is really fatal skydiving. We're in scuba diving. It's a bother, you know, unless you're in a cave. But uh, I'm really surprised that nobody checks anybody's gear. I have once in my life pin checks. I opened a guy's reserve, and the pin had snapped off the cable, and he was just about to go out the door. <laughs> I've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. I saw a girl back when uh, people were making three rings terribly wrong, you know, from Europe especially. And I looked at her across sitting in, in Mr. Douglas, and I said, I, I, I don't want to upset you, but if you have a spinning malfunction, you cannot break away, and you're going to die. And she thought, who is this asshole? <laughs> and, and so when we, we landed, we're walking back. I got another guy, and we grabbed her by the risers, pulled her up, and said, break away. And after about two minutes of crying and pulling, she got the idea that she can't break away, even with 1G. You know? And she just didn't, she couldn't recognize that her three-ring was extremely badly made. You know? That's the thing. Uh, large three-rings can be extremely badly made and still work, but the little ones can't. they got to be made just right because they only have two-thirds of the mechanical advantage of a big one. The big ones don't look as good, so people choose the more dangerous system. You know, I jump mini three rings, but only after I take the mini three rings that I'm going to jump and put them in the test machine and see how good they are. <laughs> if we all only had that test machine, yeah, I know, home. I know. We're it, we've, we've, we're pretty good at doing it now because we have jigs. We put them together on on little jigs, so they cannot be made wrong. Yeah. Um, the manufacturing standard, I just looked at and walked through. And I, I've seen a good handful of manufacturing, uh, skydiving manufacturing processes in my life. And there are two that by far stand out. And mm-hmm. I'm sitting in the building of one of them, Performance Designs, mm-hmm. and I just left the building of UPT. And it is yeah. impressive, the standard your <coughs> folks hold. Well, we've made more rigs than anyone, and none of them have fallen apart yet. Uh, our, getting materials is a hard problem, getting good materials, because we're so small. You don't think they make Cordura for us. They make it for the luggage industry, and we get last year's colors, basically, because <laughs> we're just too small. And uh, stuff gets bad all the time. Velcro has gone from good to terrible. Kevlar has gone from good to worse. Uh, everything goes downhill constantly, so we test and test and test. Bill Coe tells me a funny story. He was the first of the parachute companies to get a good tester where he could unroll his fabric big rolls of fabric over a light table and look for spots. The whole, every roll gets done like that. And they'll, they'll circle spots so in manufacture they can see they can't use this part. 
he'd get bad material and he'd send it back and it ended up being sold to someone that didn't have his test equipment. So he started halfway in there sticking a letter saying, you have been fucked by so-and-so <laughs> and the manufacturing because they were selling stuff that had been rejected to someone else, you know, yeah. and this letter, uh, you know, they got a lot of complaints. And so they said, they're not going to sell you any, any stuff anymore <laughs> and instead of fixing their procedure and not doing that. That's what we put up with. Yeah. It's, we're really the bastard stepchildren of the aviation industry, the manufacturing industry, the textile industry. We are a bunch of, in their minds, renegades, rogues, rebels. But we're practically the only sewing done in the United States anymore. Yeah. And it's and if they only realized, uh, I, I don't know if it was, I think it was Tom who said it earlier today. It's an affluent sport. It's not a, like people think it's a poor man's sport until you start skydiving and you go, oh, these aren't poor people. It is not a cheap man's cheap, sport. Cheaper than flying. But, um, you know, that's the trouble. We're having trouble keeping people because they can, ah, oh, I went skydiving last week. I'm going out on my jet ski this week or I'm doing that, you know, and there's so many more things to do. Uh, skydiving used to be more of a, of a commitment. Before you made your first jump, you were into it for a week or two. You really were. And now you're into it for 10 minutes. So you've invested so little in that first tandem jump that you just not the impetus to stay on. And that's the thing that we're... I don't know how to make it harder so that people feel they've earned it more, you know, and have more invested in the sport. And that's the reason Tandem doesn't make as many uh, converts as, Scott, as Static Line did. But, of course, almost no one tried the first Static Line. We have millions of people trying that first Tandem. So I really believe it's uh, not necessarily the challenge of this last skydive that we can push because it really, as you said, it's easy. I believe it's the challenge of the next skydive. Hey, mm -hmm. next time you come back, I'm going to teach you how to do this. Yeah. The next time, and, and that's what we've been blessed at Spaceland to be able to do is no student walks away. Mm, people make mistakes. Our instructors aren't perfect. Yeah. Very few students walk away without the dream of what's next. Yeah, you got to ask. I mean, you don't get a sale unless you ask. And so yeah. many people just hand them their first jump certificate on tandem and don't say a word. Mm -hmm. You know, some people uh, offer the next one for $99, which is good. The timeshare salesman locked in the room with him would be good, too. But, uh, yeah, you gotta, you got to tell them there's more to come. You haven't seen it all yet. Yeah. Remember before, that static line, you, you wanted to get to free fall. You had that goal, and then a five-second free fall, then a 10, then a 15. These guys have already done a 60-second free fall and flown a Ram Air canopy. They think there's nothing else to do. Yeah. But there is a lot to do. It's yeah. My favorite part of the sport is so easy to learn fundamentally and so impossible possible to master any of it man yeah. 23 years later down the road in the sport you're how many years in now 56 and we still haven't scratched the surface no. and the kids out there today are crushing it i can't imagine doing what the kids do today i was happy to get to the ground uninjured i mean that was a good <laughs> jump i didn't care what i did after i left the airplane as long as i could go up and do it again it was a good skydive you landed conscious yeah you do a whole lot <laughs> and then once the parachute opened the jump was over but not anymore. And now you got to do really freaky stuff in free fall and then even freakier stuff under the canopy. You know, so people are squeezing every every inch of altitude and putting more fun in every inch of altitude than we ever did. Um, and it used to be survival. And now it, it's no one thinks they're going to get killed in this anymore. And they're just about right. I mean, it, it's really, really safe. Uh, I tell people you've got to make 17 tandem jumps to have the same risk of dying as driving this year. Okay, and that's what it is. And you're going to drive this year, all right? And so that one tandem jump is one seventeenth. You know, you make 17 tandem jumps, it's the same chances if you're going to die driving this year. It is more dangerous than driving to the airport, but driving all year. 
and with, you know, I used to know when and where the drunks were, but now everyone's on their damn cell phone and they might as well be drunk, you know, and so you don't know where the textures are. And we just had another three people killed out in the interstate because some guy in a truck was texting and just ran right into him, you know, um, so it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> you're going to die. People fear the wrong things. There's lots of shows on that. People are scared of the wrong things. Like I'm going to Poland to give a, a talk. And my wife says, well, you can't go. There's a virus out there. You know, and I don't know. <laughs> You'll see. And it, it tends to hit 73-year-old men. <laughs> <laughs> well, statistically, it's not looking good for you, Bill. No, it's not. So this may be my last interview. I'm going to Poland in a couple of weeks. All right, got the last one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you still spend much time uh, at the production facility? Yeah, I'm there most days, but uh, I pretty much come in, tell them what's wrong, give them orders, leave, and they totally ignore me. Um, <laughs> it, 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 I, the way a rig is made now, I used to sit down and I'd make the whole rig. As a matter of fact, for the first few years, every employee would make an entire rig from start to cut it out and make it, you know, and that's the way it was. But now there's so many little pieces, parts, and, and no one ever sees a whole rig. Uh, there, there's, there's, your rig probably is touched by 60 people by the time it gets through there, each doing a little part. So I don't know how it all works anymore. I probably, Bill Coe couldn't make a parachute either, you know, but we all started off making our own stuff. Um, it's, uh, I remember I put together a reserve and I went up and I jumped with a, with a rig and a reserve I made. It's always fun at, at first, that first jump on a rig. You wonder, is something wrong that I can't see? I always wonder about that. I should pay someone. Here's my new rig. Would you go jump it once, please? <laughs> but no, I just do it. Do you uh, do you feel like you were ever like a daredevil in the sport? Well, everyone was in the '60s. It was a pretty risky thing to do. It really was. I mean, the uh, the fatality rate with 2,500 members in the Parachute Club of America at 58 fatalities compared to 40,000 members now and 15. I mean, look at it. It's uh, 20, 30 times more dangerous back then so well, we were kind of daredevils back then no one did it yeah. the the saying it's now an old saying but remember when skydiving was dangerous and sex was, was safe, safe. Yeah. yeah i do and that was when when aids first came out that thing came up i saw a t-shirt the other day uh, this younger generation the flower children or whatever again snowflakes <laughs> it, it read eat <laughs> it read eat eat read eat sleep skydive and i went no no it's eat fuck skydive jesus eat sleep God. Skydive. you know it's <laughs> it's funny like you're such a respectable guy yeah. and uh i th you say things here there it's like oh yeah you're still just you're just another guy i'm a jumper i'm a jumper yeah, like everybody it. else love it and and i you know i've i've been to all the parties forever you know i am i'm going to be both of my daughters are knocked up but that's okay they're married it'd be bad <laughs> if they're in high school but i'm going to be i'll have five grandchildren by summer you know so i'm, I'm just granddad so my five grandchildren will be the next pia seminar <laughs> and then show yeah, pictures it could be of my your five grandchildren yeah i guess so it bothers me now um the the stuff that happened here let's say by 1974 you were jumping a piggyback with uh, a ram air parachute with a slider and a hand to play a three ring in 1974. Nothing's changed. Nothing except the skyhook, you know. Uh, that's a, and, and tandem has been added into 10 years later, but really nothing has changed since tandem came in. And uh, it doesn't need to be because the gear is as good as it needs to be for how it's being used. We're, we're working with riser covers are the big deal now because mm -hmm. of, of angle flying. People are putting the, uh, the force of very high-speed wind exactly wrong at all the flaps. 
When I started jumping, there were no riser covers. We didn't need them. But then toggle started blowing out and entangling with everything and killing people. So the Vector was the first rig with riser cover. It was the first rig for free flying. That's why it was made. And we forget all that now, but all that's been worked out. But now they're being more extreme. And we've been through every kind of riser cover we can. And the geometries and everything is tricky. You know, so that's the only thing we're playing with now is, is riser covers. We can make the put stripes in a different place, but man, rigs are so pretty today. They're, they're pretty, and they're all sim- They're very similar. Yeah, I mean, every rig out there is part vector and part racer. You know, mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. And mm-hmm. there's look at every car out there. It's got four wheels and the steering wheel. You know, they they all they're pretty much the yeah. same. They in the 20s when there were a hundred car companies, cars looked different. But now that there's like three car companies, and one with that Tesla, they look pretty much the same. You know. And uh, that's what happens in the mature industry. If you are one of the most influential people on our sport, just ever, yeah. uh, and, and you're retired, so to speak, in other words, you, you're not as active in the manufacturing and invention process, tinkering process, but if you could see anything, gear, not gear, whatever, if you could see anything else evolve in our sport in your time left on this planet, what well, would you like? I'm the guy that got my PC and said, no one will ever make a better parachute than this. <laughs> You know, I couldn't foresee Ram Airs. Um, and so, no, uh, it bugs me. I would love to have a problem to solve because all the inventions are solving problems. There's no reason to invent something if you're not solving a problem with it. Why? You know? And uh, people do invent things. That It's fun to go read all the parachute patents, you know. Either more patents on toy parachutes than on human parachutes, by the way. Mm. It's fun, too. <laughs> After I found out the slider had been invented and forgotten, I went and read every parachute patent. And there are not many of them. It's a very small field, and, uh, and they're, they're more on toy parachutes. This guy with boots, where after you jump, these big springs come out, and you land on them. Of course, that breaks your leg all the time, you know. <laughs> but it's a patented device, and there's so many patents you just laugh at. But there's a few gems in there you know, that are gone. Well, the Romans knew how to make cement for the Colosseum, and it was totally lost. We didn't make cement again for 1,500 years. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's crazy how we have abandoned things and then we come back to them. And I'm, I'm so curious because at some point we will see things like a slider come back into our sport. And at what point does that next evolution bring back, hopefully not bad old technology, but good old technology? I don't know. When I watched, I watched the guy land the wingsuit in boxes, the other guy jump into a net, I figured I'm done. You know, who needs parachutes anymore? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Just put a big net over the whole damn airport. Um, I actually, I was prepared for that. I, I thought wingsuits would be landing by now. So I was going to put a little pod up front. And you had a little thing here. And, and you'd come in and you'd flare at about 10 feet. You'd push a button. It would deploy a drogue and drop down three landing gear like the space shuttle. You know, and you could just land on the runway with your wingsuit and, and go again. I don't <laughs> think the net thing will ever work no matter how big it is because no. people forgot how to spot they did. They. Oh, it, it's funny. When the Ramir came out, people had totally forgotten how to spot. Uh, about 10 years ago, someone was doing a documentary on me, and they wanted me to put out a static line student. So we found a T-10, and I, I got Louie, one of my engineers, and I said, you know, I haven't put out a static line student in 30 years, but now I'm going to do it. And then the T-10. And I'd forgotten the one piece of technology that we needed. You know, we'd forgotten the wind streamer. Without that, you can't hit the airport with a round parachute. You know, so the first time we tried it, <laughs> off in the boondocks, I said, I know what we need. And I went and I made a streamer, and I put him right in the center of the airport, and I was proud of myself. Makes it so much easier. Those WDIs, again, another loss. It's a loss because yeah. if you have a malfunction, it sure makes it easier to find. 
It does. There, there's one thing. The Skyhook has been the largest money ma- money loser I have ever made. Free bags. Free bags. You don't lose them anymore. And uh, the Skyhook, what I get for a Skyhook is about the cost of a replacement free bag. So the first time you don't lose one, you've bought your Skyhook for free. The second time, I bought you a really nice dinner. Huh, Bill, Co- Bill Coe tells me the biggest mistake he ever made was spending all the money developing ZP fabric because parachutes only used to last three or 400 jumps before they were ragged out. Now he sells three times fewer main parachutes because they last longer. Yeah. That's stupid. Work yourself out of the Work business. Work yourself out of business. When, there's a light bulb in a, in a firehouse in Chicago that Edison installed that's still burning. All right? They had a problem in the late 20s that light bulbs were never wearing out. And uh, so they got together and made a standard that light bulbs should last 1,000 hours. And uh, they dumbed them down to that. And so uh, because now they get to sell millions of light bulbs. <laughs> Most industries do that, planned obsolescence. That's why my iPhone stopped working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and iPhones, yeah, iPhone, they, slow, they, they, they screw you. They slow you down. You slow your data down. If you, oh, this guy needs a new phone, let's fix him here. I, I, I can't believe that we are walking around with portable bugging devices. <laughs> right. <laughs> and no one has Dude, to force I, us, you know? It used to be terrible. The, the room might be bugged. Well, we're all bugged. I was so paranoid as a young kid. There yeah. was talk about uh, like a United States government issued ID card that would have an RFID chip in it that would track you everywhere you what went. You and I was like, no, don't ever do that. It's like, oh, I carry that in my pocket and I paid a lot of money to have volunteer. it. Volunteer. We have volunteered surveillance. Everything we do. This new, uh, this new ADSB on airplanes that's required now, I can go on uh, this page and I can find the track of every place I took my airplane, you know, so for every airplane out there. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the big people that have uh, corporate jets have got exemptions to it, so they can't track them because knowing where they're going for a business meeting could send the stock market going crazy. So some airplanes can't be tracked. But it takes a special exemption. Everyone else is tracked. Probably makes smuggling the cocaine difficult, too. Difficult. <laughs> difficult. <laughs> you know, um, and, well, well let's, let's talk about that. So um, we had our airplane down here, and it was always in for repairs Monday through Thursday. And then we could use it starting Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It always smelled like Clorox when we got in it. And we figured the repairs were in Colombia. You know? <laughs> and all the, all the big uh, aircraft, uh, the Twin Beaches, uh, Lodestars, and DC-3s in Florida were... Uh, jumping on weekends and running dope on the uh, on the weekdays, um, so I'm uh, at my house and and I have uh, seven employees, and one of them walks in, and says, "Bill, want to see what a million dollars looks like?" And he opens a suitcase full of cocaine, and I said, "Get out of here!" You know, he closes it and leaves, and I get a phone call five minutes later. He says, "Bill, this is Sheriff Joe." You know, and he says, "Sarasoli was just at your house, and we we're trailing him," and I said. Yeah, he had a you know I said, he had a suitcase like this. I said, are you involved in this? I said, no, I got a day job. I'm not. And he says, well, I know you, and I'm going to believe you, but I got to tell you, we're arresting four of your seven employees tomorrow morning, <laughs> and it almost put me out of business. <laughs> but then, that's a kind of a sad side. It has a funny ending. So one of the four guys turned on the other one and got a three-year term, and the other guys got five. All right? So... They never got the money, so this guy builds this mansion. I mean, it's beautiful. Five stories tall, big wood house. It's gorgeous. Right? The day the other three guys get out, it burns to the ground. So I'm standing there with the guy in the ashes, and he says, Bill, you don't know what they did. He says, you know what I use for insulation? He says, $50 million of $100 oh bills. That they just, I was saving for them, and they just burned it up. 
And they're all poor now. <laughs> the revenge killed him. We're sitting at the airport bar. The runway's right outside. We hear this tremendous crash at night. We walk outside, and it's snowing cocaine. I mean, it's coating your body. And I'm going, get inside. We're going to die. So this, this uh, piper had come in with a ton of cocaine in it. The drug enforcement airplane landed right behind it, smashed into it in the prop. <laughs> and through the cocaine, it's just everywhere. It's in the trees. All the trees are turning brown. All the grass died. We're, we're just dumping our bodies onto the airport bar, which is piles of cocaine. I'm surprised no one died. But the funniest thing was the airport's closed the next day. We, we go to work. I, my shop was right there. I look out there, and the DEA is scooping the cocaine off the runway with snow shovels. Where do they get snow shovels in Florida? You know? <laughs> this, is, this is just, you, you can't make this shit up. You just can't. You know, it was, uh, it was kind of a weird time in the 70s. You know? <laughs> we all survived. You've seen some crazy things in those early yeah. days. What is the craziest thing you've seen in that aspect? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one. It involves my brother. All right. He's only, he joined the Zion Coptic Church. Their sacrament is um, marijuana. They've been smoking it for 300 years before there was a United States. They had a fleet of ships and airplanes bringing it in by tons. So he's arrested in Key West. I go to his arraignment in Dade County Courthouse. Um, all the brothers have beards. I remember walking in, and the judge said, Bailiff, looks like we missed one. I said, no, I'm not with them. I'm a brother, but I'm not a brother. You know, it's, it's a Zion Coptic Church. And so... So they go through the pleadings, and he says, uh, Michael Booth, you are, um, you are charged with bringing in 17 tons of marijuana. He said, that's a lie, Your Honor. It was 21 tons. I have a receipt <laughs> from the church. All right? He says, that sheriff stole four tons of my marijuana. What are you going to do about that, Judge? <laughs> now, everyone knew the sheriff's office in Key West was skimming drugs, but no one ever pleaded to a lesser amount. So the, the judge says, Mr. Booth, come forward. He says, bail off, arrest the sheriff. And that was the neatest parimation moment I've ever seen in my life is the, the sheriff that arrested my brother got sent to jail, and he got off as state's evidence. <laughs> Again, you can't make this stuff up. Wow. You can't. You know, there, there, there are funny stories out there. But just surviving in Florida in, in the 70s and early 80s was, was difficult, I guess. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it, but I, I almost went out of business over all of my employees being in, in, involved in drug smuggling, you know. <laughs> and I stayed clean my whole life, honest, you know. But uh, it was it was a, it was a fun time, but it, it was a different attitude than it is now. I mean, I believe the kids now are just such snowflakes. It's just amazing to me the stuff that they they got it so good that they worry about what pronoun someone calls them. You should be worried about where their next meal is coming, you know. We've made it too well. Things are so much better than it were for my, my, my grandparents especially. I mean, it's a hundred times better, and people are complaining, and that's what amazes me. I mean, just be thankful that you're, you have a, you're alive and you're eating, and you got a roof over your head, you know, because uh, most people in the world don't, and things are getting better and better and better, and now they, um, they're complaining. You know? We have way too many problems in this world to worry about what we're called and all pronoun being one thing but even just names you're stupid you're ugly i'm telling mom oh you're fat shaming well you know if you don't <laughs> fat shame, why is anyone going to go to a diet it, it's it's not good to be overweight it's a health issue you know and all this stuff gotta i'm glad i'm not a teacher now i'd be fired in a day you know <laughs> i just don't have that mindset you know i'm sorry life is difficult i i went through the era that everyone gets a trophy for participation you know and then they get out in the real world, and they're not treated like that. They don't get a paycheck for participation. you got to realize that someone hires you because of how much money you can make them. That's the only reason you get hired. 
And if you can't show them how you're going to make money for them, how you're going to let them exploit you, <laughs> you're not getting a job. <laughs> now I'm exploiting all these people. I thought I gave them a job, but now it turns out I'm exploiting them. <sighs> Don't go back home and tell the people who work for me I'm exploiting them. <laughs> Let me say that myself. I like that line. So I, I guess you, you've hired quite a number of people over the years. Yeah, a lot. And now I leave it to someone else because when you hire people, you've got to fire them, and, and that's no fun. You know, so uh, I let someone else hire. What, what does somebody like Bill Booth look for when, when uh, you're interviewing someone? Someone that's not like Bill Booth. I'm a <laughs> lousy employee. I, I, just, I could not work for myself. Uh, Bill, I mean, could work for someone else. Uh, Bill Coe was my employee. He was a lousy employee because he was just way smarter than I was, you know. And you're not you're not going to keep someone around that's smarter than you, you know. Kelly Farrington worked for me. He made a lousy employee. He's a smart guy, you know. Um, Derek Thomas worked for me. I mean, pretty much the whole industry. Everyone but Ted Strong um, and John Sherman, maybe. I think uh, there's a few of us left. There's only three people that founded PIA still alive. You know, so I'm in a small group there. Who's the other two? Johnny Higgins. Okay. And uh, Mike Johnston uh, actually attended for John Sherman's uh, Jump Shack uh, back then. And Alec Puskas, I think, is still around. He was uh, ran Paraflight for a long time, but I haven't seen him in a long time. He just doesn't show up to maybe four, you know. Um, So I guess... Pretty much, I remember them giving me a lifetime achievement award, and I was 35. And I said, "Wait, guys, I got more to live." You know, <laughs> don't end me right now. That, like, give me some more time here on this earth, fellas. I'll, I'll tell you some. I'll tell you another funny story here. Uh, my uh, my mother has uh, had tickets on the Hindenburg out of the going back to Germany from <laughs> the crash. That's kind of funny that that would happen. She was um, studying opera in Europe. Um, she sent home a picture in 1937 of her standing arm in arm with a nice, tall, in uniform SS officer with a note saying, I think I found the one, to which my grandmother sends her a telegram, which we have. It says, come home immediately. You know, <laughs> I was almost a Nazi. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. So she came home. She was brokenhearted. So they took her down to Havana uh, to uh, you know, ease her, ease her uh, heartbreak. And the first night at a bar, she met my father. So if it wasn't for this Nazi <laughs> on the steps of the Berlin Opera House, you know, um, and if the Hindenburg had crashed, you know, before, she had to go over another way. Uh, all these, these historical events, I guess, made me possible and all of us possible. I, I like to tell my kids all the accidents that happened, you know, how your parents met, how your grandparents met. And that's kind of fun to do that. So the whole, whole life is an accident. And maybe it is a matrix. Maybe we're just uh, not really here. It's all, a, it's all a game. That simulation theory has been coming up a whole lot recently. By quantum physics, all right, I don't believe in predestination. I mean, everything's determined. But actually it is because everything that happens is caused by the motion of atoms and electrons. All right? And they're all set. Yeah, even, even thought processes in your head, you know, things are going on. All those are set in motion by the Big Bang. So theoretically, everything you do was set in motion by something that happened, you know, billions of years ago. Maybe. <laughs> you really can't control the, the chain of dominoes that are going. No. no. And it's... Even, I, even when you change your mind, that was predestined. <laughs> I tell instructors all the time, I tell skydivers all the time who are worried about something, I'm like, no matter what, it's going to work out. It might not work out the way we planned. It might not work out the way we wanted. But 10 years from now, you're not going to care how it worked out. You just no. know it will. And, you, and ultimately, you might be happy. I met my wife through a problem in my life. I had a huge problem. I had to relocate. And I relocated to reset my life. And if it wasn't for the stupid acts I made, the stupid things I did, 
and having to reset my life, I would have never met that young lady. No? And she is wonderful. And she is still young. I think she's 25 still. Still. So yeah, good. Still, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I use that line to my wife all the time, too. Yeah, uh, yeah it is amazing how it. we... <laughs> all this chain of events that makes everything in our lives possible. If I hadn't gone scuba diving that day, if I'd left five minutes earlier, five minutes later, I would never have taken up skydiving. And you wouldn't have the hand floating through. You'd have something else. But... Uh, so that one little accident of the moment that I left to go on a scuba diving trip and then when this guy left an airplane to land right in front of me on the road is an amazing coincidence. Yeah. Who knows where our gear would be? Who knows where tandem skydiving would be? I'd wonder. You often wonder what would happen. You yeah. go watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and they, they play with that. Uh, what if you were never born? How much worse would the world be? Or better? Yeah. You know? Uh, everyone makes uh, a good impression on me. You know, some when they come, some when they leave. You know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, everyone makes me happy. Some when they show up, some when they leave. Yeah. I'm going to remember that line. And, man, one of the things that I, I, I have known of you is you're a great storyteller. And the thing I was warned about you while we were touring the factory is like, huh. do you guys have a time limit? You should make sure <laughs> Bill knows that. Um, we don't have a time limit when we have a great guest like you. Uh, thank you. Um, I would love, uh, first of all, to have you back again. We, we are normally in Houston. We came to, I'll tell you right now, we came to DeLand. This is a dream we set a year and a half ago in motion. And there are two people why I came to DeLand. <laughs> One of them sitting here right now. Tomorrow morning, John LeBlanc will be filling John that LeBlanc chair instead. He could talk more than I can. Yeah. Oh, he's trapped me in a corner before. And just remember, my, the, the credo of my life here is that the experts are always wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's always a better way to do things that they don't know about it yet. And just because the majority of people are doing it doesn't mean it's right. I mean, McDonald's is the most popular restaurant in the world. It doesn't mean the food is good. <laughs> you know, it really doesn't. <laughs> but and, we've been doing it that way 40 years. Yeah, and that's exactly, that's where the hand deploy and, and the three ring were all people wouldn't use them. They were scared. They called me the biggest mass murderer in the history of skydiving. And uh, it's, you know, every invention has to be fought for, you know. Yeah. Well, we hope to come back someday. We hope to be back in town someday. Um, not necessarily going to say we'll wrap up yet because we might get into a couple more rabbit trails. But is there anything else you want to share with our friends, our family watching? I have no idea. I, I don't know what's in my head till it comes out. You'll say a word and I'll remember something. Banana hammock. Banana hammock. Yeah, that's a toughie. <laughs> <laughs> that's a toughie. Oh, yeah. I remember that girl in the hammock. No, all right. <laughs> I, uh, we did go to a girl in the hammock earlier today. Yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah, we did. There you go. Who invented the hammock? That's a great invention. I see all the kids at Stetson now. They've got a palm tree court, and they've all got these little parachute hammocks, and they're all just around there that you know fold up like this. Yeah. That's one thing we're going to see when spider silk, a guy has got goats to secrete spider silk in their milk, and spider silk's about six times stronger and smaller than, uh, than nylon. So if we get spider silk, Commercially, you'll be able to keep your main parachute in your right front pocket and your reserve in your left front pocket. No kidding. Containers won't be necessary. Everything will just hand deploy the whole damn parachute. <laughs> Man, I just I, we look at the small magic backpacks some of us wear today, and it just is mind-blowing. They'll, they'll be, when spider silk comes out, your backpack will be one-third the size it is now. No kidding. Man, I just can't wait to see the evolution. Anything yeah. else, Nick, you want to... Talk to Mr. Booth about uh, you know with your history in music. I wonder if you've gotten back to music with uh, le- spending less time uh, doing parachute stuff. Oh no, I I just I have a piano I play all the time, and I've I'm, heard that you're very talented well, on that I, piano. Well, thank you, and I'm a chairman of the music board at Stetson University and the music board at University of Florida, and so uh, I'm still keeping my hand in a little bit like that because it's fun to talk to musicians. 
you know, because I grew up doing that, and I love music, any kind of music. Of course, the only good popular music is when I was in high school and college. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. We, we all feel that way. It, exactly. It doesn't matter your age. I stopped listening to music in 1992 or anything after 1992. That's when college, or actually high school ended for me. After that, I'm like, these two guys commonly quote things where I'm like, I don't get it. And they make fun of me because you're too old. You stop listening to things after college and high school. Yeah, it's not popular culture. I, I remember I put my daughters to shame once. I said, well, I grew up with Elvis and the Beatles. Who do you have? And they're going, <laughs> Justin Bieber. I thought you Justin were going to say Be- that they now listen to Elvis and the Beatles. Beatles. They, oh, they do. My, the only music I can listen to with my daughter's pop music is, is Beatles. They will listen to it because it's so good. Have you seen the movie where the premise is this musician wakes up and that no one remembers the Beatles except him? It's a, no. Yeah, it ends up being like three other people. Yeah, three other people that yeah. turn out in later. And he gets to introduce all the Beatles songs and becomes the world's... In, in just two months, he introduces all the Beatles songs. And all of a sudden, he's the world's biggest rock star. And you wonder, how can this end? And it was handed well, yeah. you know, especially the little visit to John Lennon in the Seaside Cab. And I thought that was touching. That was but a really fun movie. That was a fun movie. I saw it in an airplane. So you kind of wonder uh, what would happen if these people didn't exist. You know, we don't have any Beatles music. We'd have lots of music. Well, yeah. I think you fit that role for skydiving. Yeah. Well, I don't want. We'll I don't want to live in a in a world without Bill Booth. It, I, and I don't <laughs> believe we'd still be jumping. Well, we are still jumping internal spring loaded pilot shoots and 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 capo releases. The military still uses them right and left. You know, and we use them in our reserves. The the vector was going to be a hand deployed reserve rig, but then. Automatic openers came out, and it's not very compatible. We figured we wanted automatic openers more than hand deploy reserves. And, uh, oh, well, that's the way it is. It works well enough, doesn't it? I mean, I know a lot of friends who it's gone pretty well for. Yeah, almost everybody, almost everyone, except I have personally watched a dozen people burn in, you know, almost all of them in the, uh, in the 70s. Now I watched a guy try to burn in, the automatic opener saved, and I watched three of those. Where there's no way they're going to make it, and boom. You know what the reserve ride, average reserve ride is in an automatic opener? Like five, six seconds? <laughs> set your, I heard almost say once, set your automatic opener up at 1,000 feet, people. Don't play this game. It's not worth another second and a half of free fall or something. You know, 750 feet, you get a polish hesitation, anything goes wrong, you're dead. You know, these three or four second reserve rides is scary. You know? So just open at 2,500 feet, set your automatic opener at 1,000 feet, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> God, open at twenty five hundred feet? Not me. No, yeah. when you you know you're down to two thousand, your automatic opener set at one thousand. You're gonna have two outs. I pull at thirty five hundred feet every skydive. There you skydive. go. I yeah. co- I get a nosebleed when I go below thirty five hundred feet myself. <laughs> but I mean, these the, the days of pulling down at two thousand feet is not a good idea. So. Oh, our our systems have changed. Our parachutes have changed. Thank God they open softer and slower than they used to. Yeah, and you need to open higher because yeah. you know you're going faster. Than we used to. We always used to be this way for a long time. When you come out of that that angle flying and you go stable for one second, you haven't slowed down. You're still going 160 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And you don't want your parachute to open in one second at that speed. You know, that, that, that'd be the end of you. So um, anyway. I mean, you've shared a lot of good stories today, but uh, the wisest thing I, I, I think you guys can share is, man, one of the godfathers of what we do today just told you, pull higher, turn up your AAD, Man, you've heard it all over the place. You've heard it from some greats. You've heard it from one of the greatest. And if you can't take Bill Booth's advice, <laughs> get fucked. <laughs> and I had to fight with USPA to to raise the minimum opening altitude from 2,000 to 2,500 just so that people could set their automatic openers higher. Yeah. That took three years of politicking. 
So. Man, I, I served on the board for a little while, and it's a lot of politicking on that. A thing. lot of politicking on that board. Yeah, yeah I, I got tired of it after writing all the new TSOs. I got sick of it. I didn't participate in F because we we blew C and D and E so badly. Us, not the FAA. We sent them junk. You know, that no one could pass. You know, now F is finally to the point where you can actually TSO something that will, it'll pass. You know. We got all we got all compatibility problems right and left. If you jump in a, a rig with a B on it and you got a C parachute and it isn't legal, but nobody knows at the FAA, so don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> and it works fine. It's not that it's unsafe. It's just that the rules don't permit the mixing. You know. So there you go. Uh, well, we're stepchildren. No one cares about us much. Uh, we really are. We're, we're, we're the bastards of, of aviation. I, I wish I. It's a hard statement. I wish we had better representation, and I can't completely say that because I do think Randy Ottinger and USPA do a great job of representing yeah. us. Without USPA, the, we wouldn't be jumping. I wish the FAA understood us better. I wish they would take the time to learn. But they don't have any jumpers in there. No, you know they're all they're all pilots. Um, like I say, I finally got tanning through because I was boyhood buddies with the administrator of the FAA for a few years. It's not what you know; it's who you know. Yeah, it is, especially in Washington. My daughter is a high-priced lawyer in Washington, was clerk for the uh, John Roberts Supreme Court, you know, so uh, she knows all those people, and, and she got out. She couldn't take the swamp anymore. She's living in Boston now, you know, raising my grandchildren. <laughs> uh, life is good. Life is grand. Bill, thank you mm-hmm. so much for joining us. Uh, please join us again the next time we're in town. I'll give you another email if you don't mind. Okay. Hopefully you're not completely retired and off in Grand Cayman just living life with Tom Cruise yeah. and Nicole Kidman. And anyone that listened to this whole thing for two hours, get a life. (laughs) (laughs) Guys and gals, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to Performance Designs for hosting this show. They've given us this wonderful room for the week. And thank you once again to the wonderful, the magnificent, the bearded Bill Booth. The wonderful wizard of something. (laughs) Wonderful wizard of Of beards. (laughs) I love the Lord of the Three Rings. Lord of the Three Rings. That's what I am. Lord of the Three Rings. Okay. Guys and gals, thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.